All right. Uh, but I was just saying this is a very, uh, very unusual experience for me because usually when I'm starting to do a show, I am looking into the camera, I'm worried about where the lights are positioned, all that stuff. But right now I am just talking into my phone. I'm so I'm sitting here wearing a Michigan State University hoodie and 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 sipping a glass of Talisker um and sitting in the you know the semi darkness cuz the uh, the lights aren't on, you know, the nice lights aren't on and this is kind of a dark room. Uh but I'm excited to uh, to see how this goes. This should be really fun. Um this is uh, this is the maiden voyage. Um, right now, I should say I am just talking into my phone. Um, but um, in the future, uh, Colin is supposed to be sending me a, a microphone that can can hook up with, with my uh, with my phone. But right now, I hope uh, the audio quality is okay. Uh, and for this one, uh, we're just going to do this as a general ask me anything. In the future, I'll have guests on. We'll do things specifically for people who want to argue with me about one particular topic or another. But right this second, um, this is just totally open-ended. So if there's been something that you have been wanting to set me straight about, this is an excellent opportunity to uh, to set me straight. If there's something that you have been wanting to to ask me about, uh, whatever happens to be on your mind, philosophy, logic, capitalism, socialism, uh, <laughs> whiskey, wh- whatever, whatever may be on your mind, I am I'm happy to get into. Uh, this is an experiment, but it is an experiment that I am excited uh, to start up. So uh, if you if you want to call in, um, just just go ahead and do so, and I'll start uh, I'll start calling on people while I am waiting for that to happen. I suppose. Uh, I will talk a little bit about what I've been doing today. So earlier today, I was on um, Redacted Tonight uh, on, uh, on, on RT. So I suppose if there are any, uh, you know, MSNBC liberals who are, uh, who are particularly eager to get mad at me, uh, I guess they can, be, uh, they can get mad at me for going on, uh, you know, uh, Russian-sponsored, uh, Russian-sponsored TV. But I was on there to talk about the new book about about Hitchens and what was so good about young Christopher Hitchens and and how he went badly wrong and, and took these positions on the wars that I really view as a moral and political disaster in the last years of his life. Uh, so uh, that was a really that was a really fun conversation. I really liked that a lot. Uh, but meanwhile, we have a caller. So let us try this out and see if I can do this without screwing up uh, the uh, the technical part. So. There we go. All right, Sean. Here we go. Great. Great. Well, you know, I want to thank you for the show. Um, I learned about uh, you through the wonderful book, uh, Myth and Mayhem. And um, I thought your contribution to that book was just incredible. Um, Love all of the zero books. um, And, you know, just just kind of starting to dig into your work. So thank thank you so much for it. Um, I kind of backed into democratic socialism uh, via uh, two thinkers, uh, David Graeber and David Bentley Hart. Um, both of whom I would say are, yeah. I mean, David Bentley Hart certainly is a, in addition to being a philosopher, he's an Orthodox theologian. So not a materialist. And, um, David Graeber mm-hmm. has, uh, written some, some pretty interesting articles, uh, including, um, one called what's the point if we can't have fun and, uh, his book, uh, the utopia of rules. Um, 
really gestures, I think, at, at a, at a non-materialist mm-hmm. met- metaphysics, um, some type of like mm-hmm. panpsychism, um, or maybe like a neutral, uh, like monism that, uh, I guess, um, Thomas Nagel would describe. I was wondering how open to you, uh, how open to like non-materialist metaphysics are you? Are you kind of like agnostic? Do you, do you think that, a a non-materialist metaphysics is actually essential to being a Marxist or to having a Marxist framework. Kind of, what are your broad feelings on uh, metaphysics, uh, the link between metaphysics and, and political philosophy? Yeah, thanks, Sean. That is that is a really interesting question, uh, and uh, thank you for the first part. Uh, you know, Myth and Mayhem's book that uh, did not get that much love. That came out just in time for us to not be able to do any events to promote it because uh, the world was shutting down. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I definitely need to, to read some, some David Graeber. That's, that's kind of been on the, on the two read pile for a while now, because everything I ever hear about him always sounds fascinating. I, I guess in terms of metaphysics, I would want to separate out the, what I think question from the, how I think it relates to like Marxism or, you know, democratic socialism, because I, I think that the relationship between between Marxism and the sorts of questions that you're raising about non-materialist metaphysics and uh, panpsychism and all that is like, I actually don't really think there is that much of a relationship one way or the other there. I think that um, like the kind of materialism that's actually relevant to Marxism uh, is, is just something different than what people usually mean when they talk about materialism and, and philosophy, right? So usually... And, you know, when you're really doing like philosophical metaphysics, what you mean by materialism is a belief that nothing exists except the material. I mean, that's not super precise, but, you know, I I think that's probably good enough Uh, that, you know, there's no non-material anything, that there's no, uh, that you don't have any sort of like non-material minds that, you know, could possibly out, you know, survive the death of our bodies, that, you know, you, you don't have any God, you know, like, like stuff like that, right? That's the, that's the kind of thing that I think people uh, are really thinking of uh, when they use the word materialism, you know, in, in that metaphysics kind of context. Whereas I think the kind of materialism that, that's important for Marxism doesn't really rely on whether, you, whether or not you believe any of that. I think you could be, um, you know, I, I think you could be like an Orthodox Christian or Orthodox Buddhist or whatever, and still believe in the kind of materialism that matters for Marxism. So, um, so I think when Marxists talk about like historical materialism, they're talking about a theory of how, of how human history works that, um, you know, ultimately, you know, Marx's analysis would be the, as the forces of production develop, in other words, the sort of capacity of society to produce things that that changes the, the economic relations within that society and that that changes the ideological superstructure, you know, culture, ideology, all that, all that superstructure stuff. And, you know, there are different criticisms you could make of, of parts of the classical Marxist view. And, um, and, you know, there might be places where you think it's overstated or it needs to be watered down to be really accurate. But I think broadly speaking, like I would sign on to that kind of materialism in that sense um, and, and that's like half of what I usually mean by Marxism. So I, I think half of it is that uh, empirical claim that, uh, that history does in fact work like that, which I actually think is a pretty important claim and, and is true in some really important ways. 
I'd be happy to get into that. But then uh, the other half is just normative political philosophy. It's about what you think should happen. Uh, and, and the two interact because the theory of history can tell you something about how it could happen. But again, you know, that's all consistent with like, you could believe in, you know, like that there are 20 gods and our, our souls transmigrate into new bodies and, and all that stuff and believe everything that I just said. Um, I, I think that would be, I mean, I know that's controversial, but I think that's totally consistent. Now, what do I actually personally believe about any of that? Eh, I'm pretty skeptical, I think, about non-materialist uh, metaphysics. I mean, it seems like a lot of what you're raising, maybe you could say a little bit more about what you had in mind when you used that phrase, but a lot of what you're talking about is about uh, philosophy of mind, right? You know, how how our, um, you know, minds and brains, you know, are related to each other, right? Whether, whether minds, just, you know, like thoughts and feelings just are brain states or maybe are functional states of, you know, of, of our physical, you know, brains and bodies or, you know, or whether there's some non-physical thing going on there. And, and I think philosophy, you know, there are a lot of areas of philosophy where I'm, I have like, I'm like obnoxiously certain about what I think is right. Uh, the, uh, you know, philosophy of mind is definitely not one of them because it's one of those weird things where like all the positions kind of feel wrong to me. Uh, panpsychism, you know, as I understand it, is like the the idea that the whiskey I'm drinking right now, you know, has a mind, and the and the phone I'm talking into, you know, has some sort of mental states and all that stuff. And, and I've got to say, probably not, right? You know, I mean that that doesn't that like you know just just sort of intuitive gut check, you know, I think that that's I think that's very unlikely to be true. But like, what is the right view about minds? I really have no idea. Does, does any of that answer your question? Oh, it, it really does, and it, and it was it was just kind of funny because, um, you know, I'm 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 not a uh, a philosophy student any longer. I you know took uh, some undergrad classes in, in philosophy, but like uh, you know, there's 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 all kinds of different theories of, of now panpsychism, which would be like bottom up, which which would um, gosh, I'm kind of getting it mixed up myself. But the idea that you know a lot of a lot of um, I think really good, respectable, um, non-materialist, uh, maybe quasi panpsychists would say, well, you know, your iPhone is definitely not uh, conscious. But uh, it would be, it would go, it would, yeah. it, but in principle, it like it ought to be right. If um, I think that's one of the best arguments uh, okay. against materialism is that you know uh, why you know why should uh, mental facts uh, if they you know even in in the you know the, the way we're using them why should they be limited to organic gray matter? Shouldn't they also be you know capable of yeah. being experienced whatever that experience is by an iPhone or a or a neural net or the internet itself, you know, so I, I think there's some, some meat on that bone um, to at least, you know, make everyone a little epistemically humble <laughs> on the, on that side. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I gotcha. I mean, there, like there is something, um, there is something that seems like a little bit strange about saying that, um, that things like brains, are the only kinds of things that can be conscious. Like this is what I mean, you've probably read. There's this super famous Terry Bisson short story. It's like, it's, it's like a dialogue. It's like almost like a one act play called uh, they're, they're made out of meat where it's, it's, it's from the perspective of these aliens who, you know, you get from context, you know, are, are like, I don't know, like they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, you know, instead of brains, they have like, you know, silicon chips or something. And they've just discovered, you know, Earth, and and they're all weirded out that you know that these things that seem to be conscious, 
you know, that all that, all that they can find in their heads is, is, is meat. You know, it's like, how could meat possibly be conscious? Is there like a silicon chip inside the meat? You know, like, like, I don't get it. Uh, and, and like what, what they're, uh, you know, what Betsy right. is having a little bit of fun with there is I think exactly what you're saying. You know, this idea that like, there's something sort of like magic and special about this one kind of matter that it gives, you know, rise to consciousness and nothing else would. But I think you could probably reject that, you know, without being anything like a, a panpsychist, right? So like, I think this is not a position I find particularly intuitively satisfied either. Like I said, like this is an area where everything seems sort of wrong. Just some of it seems wronger than, you know, others, other possibilities. But, um, but I think like, right. uh, you know, like functionalism is a really popular view about mind that says that minds are essentially just like a certain kind of complex, you know, input output system that, uh, so, uh, you could, you know, like people who think that like you could in principle, like transfer your, your consciousness to a computer or something like there's usually something like functionalism in the background. Cause they'll say like all it is, like all having a thought is, is like, it's, it's like a program that, you know, happens to be instantiated in the meat, but like, uh, it could be instantiated anything that all it is, is that like under certain circumstances, you're going to act in certain ways or be disposed to act in certain ways. That's all it is to have thoughts and feelings and all that, which like I said, sounds wrong. But then again, uh, the idea that the iPhone is conscious sounds wrong too. And, you know, and, and, and maybe I don't understand enough about how, Sure. Uh, panpsychism, panpsychist views work, you know, but it, it, it sort of seems like, um, you know, if, you know, like this, like the idea, you know, like panpsychism, that's like pan, like everything has a psyche, right? You know, that's what panpsychism, you know, means. So if, if maybe everything is like, has some sort of proto consciousness or something, and if you put it together the right way, then it has consciousness, um, I, I mean, I, I guess my big object, like, I guess my big thing would just be like, if that were true, how would we ever possibly know that it was true? Right. Right. Um, I get, I, I, yeah, and I don't, I'm kind of, I don't want to, you know, monopolize sure, sure. any time. No, it's been good though. I'm sure. But you know, I think what's really interesting is um, you know, the reason I even backed into all this and kind of brought this up was, um, you know, I, I, I began studying Jordan Peterson, not, not for, not to study him, but oh, just, yeah to kind of expose myself to his ideas. And I thought that what was really kind of salient was, was the metaphysical element that, that um, drove him towards and, and uh-huh. kind of, that I think kind of drives like Jordan Peterson or, um, or like uh, Richard Dawkins or um, mm-hmm. Stephen Pinker towards, towards what I would, what I kind of, I don't, and I don't want to like, I don't want to really like use the word crypto Nazi loosely. I, I want to be very careful. Yeah. With that. But there, there's something there in the Jordan Peterson, Steven Pinker, who's, you know, kind of been on this weird, bizarre, like Ashkenazi crusade of saying like, uh-huh. you know, Ashkenazi have higher IQs and thus, you know, uh, race realism is a thing. And, you know, we need to, you know, structure. And I, and I don't want to put words in Pinker's mouth, but there seems to be this kind of like very cryptic, like, well, if, you know, if I can find the tail, um, you know, the tail problem with Ashkenazi Jews, and I, I guess, you know, I, I don't want to say it out loud, but I, I assume we could do it with African-Americans. Like, it's kind of like the non <laughs> that's the quiet part they never say loud. And it's just like, I've noticed that they seem to back into these, like, really brutal, racist, um, neoliberal positions through yeah. their metaphysics. Um, and, and I think that uh-huh. Chris Rich has actually avoided that um, in a way that was really clever. 
I don't know how he quite did it. <laughs> Maybe he was just not not um, taking his metaphysics to to his. Um, but see, I don't want to put him in that hole either. Say because I want to say materialists can also be you know kind Marxists and democratic socialists. But there does seem to be something about the that uh, I think the collaborator on the the, the book that may have called it the apotheosis of this kind of like brutal Dawkinsian or neo Darwinist worldview. Does that make sense? I don't know. Uh, I, I think I get what you're saying. So I, I, I guess again, I make a couple distinctions. I mean, I think that um, I, I would I would push back against the idea that like it's material. Like you know, I mean, what, whatever. I don't like calling people Nazis, but like you know, the stuff that you're talking about, right? You know, the uh, sure the the sort of like bad views about race and IQ and all of that stuff. Um, which, which, yeah, I mean, Hitchens was, uh, you know, credit where credits due. I mean, even even in the even in the period of his life where he 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 thought a lot of stuff I really disagreed with, he always hated that, you know, and and he, um, right. you know, and, and he, right. he talked about it a lot. Uh, but uh, I would really push back against the idea that it's like metaphysical materialism that's that that's that's uh, that's okay. causing that, and certainly I push back against it in Peterson's case because he, you know. One thing Peterson sure doesn't seem to be as a materialist, right? Like he, uh, I can't, Ben, I can't figure it out. I honestly can't. I, I, I think that I, I call him like, a, I think Richard Gordy would, you know, do, call, had, a, had a piece where he talked about the, the new priests being in science. And <laughs> I think that Jordan Peterson's like cleverest move is um, playing this game where he layers uh, reality and says, like, look, uh, it, kind of in the Sean Carroll, you know, and I, I don't mean to just name drop them. This kind of like Sean Carroll, yeah. like, well, look, we're we're talking on this layer of reality. So I, I can never quite figure out what Jordan Peterson thinks. But my guess is if I if we if we put him on the spot, he would say, look, yeah. I'm using words on this layer of reality. They apply. Um, I get I kind of I think he would say, well, I kind of get semantics on this level of reality. I think words kind of make sense on this level of reality. But there's this level of reality above that we're talking in the abstract sense where I can gesture at non-theism, which I think he he speaks on usually, but like, I don't think he actually believe or, or, or man, I'm not, I'm a little nervous. I'm sorry, but yeah, no, no, it's, it's, you, it's okay. You get what I'm I, saying. I, I, no, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I mean, I think that like part of the problem is it's really hard to tell what, I mean, I think part of what you're saying is just, it's really hard to tell what Jordan Peterson thinks because, because, because of the way he talks. Right. And also because like, if he says X, Y, or Z is true, it's really hard to tell what that means to him because <laughs> right. like if you listen to the first time that Peterson was ever on Sam Harris's podcast, like, man, I've never felt so sympathetic to Sam Harris in my life because <laughs> they spent like two hours arguing about whether things could be true. Even if, even if they like, they had like bad consequences and, uh, and like, I mean, Harris is just a, is just like trying to make this incredibly simple distinction, and, and he sounds like nothing so much as this like stressed, overworked, like adjunct community college professor just talking to the world's most confused <laughs> undergrad, you know, Jordan Peterson. But uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, to the extent that I can figure out what you know Peterson is saying when he starts talking about stuff like religion, it gets the least clear what he's saying. Uh, but to the extent that I can figure it out, I mean, it seems to be some kind of like mystical, religious, something or other. Right. I mean, like there's this video that you can watch. I think it's Harris talking to Peterson and, uh, I know I think it, I think it actually might be, sorry, this is uh, really insulting to say Harris, uh, who I, I dislike, but doesn't deserve this comparison. I think it was Dave Rubin talking to, uh, 
uh, to Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. And he asked them, like, hey, you know, a lot of people think, like, believing in God is, like, dumb, but, like, you guys believe in God, you know, what, 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 what's up, right? And, and, and Shapiro is very clear. He just gives this kind of canned version of, like, a Thomas Aquinas kind of argument for the existence of God. And Peterson just rambles for five minutes, and uh, he says something about how he thinks he could detect a masculine principle in reality that makes him think something, something, something. And it's like, all right, I don't know, I don't know what you're saying, but this sounds like this sort of weird mystical gibberish that's like, you know, Shapiro is talking about God the way that you talk about God if you're just a normal religious person. And Peterson is talking about God the way you, you would if like you just took a fuckload of peyote. And so um, it's very, I always always thought that was his way of of keeping the grift up because I just figured that he doesn't want to come out and say, look guys, I am a metaphysical materialist. I speak as if these things are true, but I know that y'all are buttering my bread. So I don't want to come out and be like, guys, I really don't believe in this, but you know, I'll just gesture at that. Yeah. yeah, It's, I mean, it's very hard to say, right? I mean, like, the, like obviously, the big influence on Peterson is Jungian psychology, and like, Jung was kind of a weird mystic too. You know, it's 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 hard to tell, right? Uh, but but I guess the larger thing, you know, like abstracting outside of Peterson is, I don't, you know, like, I would push back against the idea that there's some like straight line from uh, metaphysical materialism to like, you know, this kind of like race science about IQ, uh, because I mean, first of all. Uh, historically, lots of people who who believed, you know, that like the races, you know, had like really different minds and all that stuff were, you know, extremely religious, right? Like they, uh, that, um, right. and they yep. like got all these weird 19th century beliefs that, you know, that like, I don't know, white people are descended from Adam and Eve, but there were separate creations, you know, for, for other races on other continents and, you know, stuff like this. Uh, but, um, but also like, I think, I mean, just at a basic level, I mean, if you're trying to have beliefs that are based on on empirical evidence, um, like, it does not actually seem to be the case, right? You know, like, take all morality and politics out of it. It, it sure doesn't seem to be the case that, like, white people's brains are any bigger or any, like, different from black people's brains or Asian people's brains or, you know, that, like, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish brains are any different from Irish brains or, you know, like, any of that stuff, right? Like, it, it, it seems to be, you know, it, it seems to be kind of the same. Uh, right, 100%. You know, so, so I think that, um, you know, so, so I think you certainly, like, like, like I kind of get the way that, like, you could be, like, a version of, like, a, a race science weirdo who who likes to sort of you know, kind of shroud yourself in the rhetorical cloak of materialism. And I also get how you could be like a a really good kind of religious person who uses religious language to push back against it. You know, you could be like, no, we're all created in the image of God, you know, all this stuff. Right. Like, I think, like, I think both of those things are things that have definitely existed, but like also like, uh, you know, the best takedown of the stuff you're talking about was written by, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, who, Stephen Jay Gould, he was yeah, a comrade. yeah, he was a comrade, and also a uh, uh, he was super polite about this, but you know, but I, I think a uh, atheist leaning agnostic, you know, was his uh, way of putting it. Like he he wrote this book called uh, Rocks of Ages, I think, uh, where he, uh, um, you know, he has, you know, it's like it's like very very friendly towards religion, but it's also like the, a book by a religious skeptic, uh, and it's it's a you know it's a fun book. Like he he talks about how. You know, he grew up in this neighborhood where everybody was either Jewish or Catholic, and uh, 
his one Protestant friend, you know, took him to, to meet, you know, took Gould to meet, you know, the friend's uh, grandparents. And he didn't believe they were really grandparents because as a child, part of his understanding of what grandparent meant is that you had some kind of foreign accent. So, <laughs> yeah, Gould's a really good writer, actually. I, th- I, think he, I think he deserves a comeback. But anyway, I should probably take some more calls, but thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Have a, have a great session. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's get Rick. Are you there, Rick? Hi there. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Um, well, thanks for uh, doing this, Ben. I'm uh, coming at things from a different ideological perspective from you, but uh, I, I'm nice. generally a fan of your methodology. So it's it's fun to uh, get a chance here. Um, just quickly on, on the issue of characterizing Jordan Peterson. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it seems pretty clear from that discussion he had with Sam Harris that he's just a straightforward pragmatist. Uh-huh. Is, is, there, is there a reason you think it, it would be something different? No, I think he is a pragmatist about truth, but I think that makes it really hard to tell what his beliefs are about the, uh, you know, reality because because for him, you know, it's not like a belief is false because it doesn't correspond to external reality because that's not what he thinks truth is. So, like, it makes it really hard to even ask the question of what his metaphysical beliefs are. Right. Well, I mean, the pragmatist would say that there's some human purpose that the tr- uh, you know a truth will help you. Uh, achieve. And in the case of religion, it seems pretty clear, and this is why he's so squishy and, and fuzzy uh, on it. He thinks that there's a, a whole set of human purposes that religion helps you with, and therefore it's uh-huh. quote, effectively true. I mean, I, right. I, I, obviously I agree with you, and that, that's a silly position, but it does seem to be a pretty well-defined position in the history of philosophy. Uh, yeah, I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, that there are, uh, although it's weird, right? Cause like, I think about the pragmatists and like, um, you know, there are definitely people who are in that tradition who seem to have, you know, pretty well-defined or, you know, at, at the very least, like it's easier to tell what their views were about some of these other topics than it is with Peterson in a different way. Right. Like, so like, you know, William James was really interested in paranormal research and, you know, like seances and stuff. And, and I, I don't think he just thought that that stuff was like useful in some way, or maybe if he had to philosophically justify it, he would say it was useful in some way. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I don't, uh, you know, maybe I, I've never really been able to wrap my mind around pragmatism very well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, kind of in the same boat. So maybe I shouldn't come down on you hard for that. But my, my real question oh. was um, actually uh, curious if you've read the Lindsay Pluckrow's book, Cynical Theories, uh, and, and what you think about it. And, and okay. in particular, yeah. and I want to separate this from Lindsay as a person. Obviously, he's gone a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and, and the book seems to be mainly written by Pluckrow's anyway. So just concentrating on the material of the book and specifically sure. the main idea that kind of identifies wokeism as this development out of this original, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cadre of postmodernists from the sixties who then there's this kind of mutant mm-hmm. version of their thought that develops in the eighties the and, and, and the nineties that, um, that, you know, they called reified postmodernism or applied postmodern. They have different terms, but you know, th- the basic idea being that, um, that you, you you kind of you abandon this uh, playful skepticism of all truth claims 
and you kind of agree that certain things like the existence of marginalized groups, et cetera, th that those are effectively just objectively true. And you don't you don't want to argue about that in that kind of, you know, ultra cynic, ultra skeptical style that maybe, you know, a Foucault would. What do you think about that general kind of analysis of where woke uh, came from? Sure. So I, I should I should start out by admitting that I have not read cynical theories. Um, I, I could definitely believe, in, in fact, I, I, shouldn't even, I shouldn't even say it like that. I am certain that Lindsay was much saner when he wrote Cynical Theories, if only because uh, I, don't think, I don't think Helen Pluckrose would have written a book with him if, if he wasn't, you know, at that point. Like, uh, I, I, I think that there's stuff that, you know, that I think she's wrong about, you know, like, like there are definitely topics that I disagree with her about. But I, I have, you know, had a little bit of contact with her over the years because, like, I, I've written stuff for, for Ario, which, which she, you know, she used to, uh, to edit. And, and I've, you know, whatever, I've seen her Twitter and whatnot. And, you know, certainly like politically, she seems to be this like, um, you know, fairly moderate, like social Democrat who just, who just sort of thinks that certain kinds of woke things are, are, are crazy. Right. So, um, so I, I definitely wouldn't associate her with, with what, uh, whatever Lindsay has, uh, has become. Uh, as far as the this the sort of analysis, right, which I guess is the only part I can really address because I haven't read the book. Uh I guess I am my initial inclination would be to be a little bit skeptical about this that sort of line of connection. Uh and and you know, to to like really kind of push like what what it means to say that, you know, um certain kinds of, you know, social justice, you know, ideology maybe have, uh, have roots in postmodernism or a kind of postmodernism or, or anything like that, which by the way, interestingly enough, Lindsay himself no longer seems to believe, you know, cause, cause I think all the connections he wants to draw now aren't from, aren't from postmodernism at all, right. They're from like critical theory to like the, the Frankfurt school, right. I mean, it's a totally different, uh, you know, lineage and one that I think, fits much better with his desire to uh you know to see communists everywhere but uh but but i'm a little yeah yeah, yeah i yeah, think yeah. just on that real quick I, I think he had mentioned at some point that they Pluckrose and Lindsay had kind of had a disagreement about which was the primary cause mm. whether it was the postmodernists or the critical theorists which are clearly distinct groups and it seems like Pluckrose mm. was more on the the causes is fundamentally the postmodernists with uh, where, whereas Lindsay was was always kind of looking more at the critical theorists, but let's like just try and sticking with the book, which I think is the strongest sure, case sure. of the argument, and forgetting about Lindsay and whatever he thinks now. Um, kind of just curious, really, on that postmodern education so, so, uh, thesis. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so sorry, Rick. I I missed like thirty seconds of what you said. Oh uh, yeah, just quickly that uh, you know Pluckrose seemed to be the one that thought that the postmodernists. Were, were the key cause, whereas uh -huh. Lindsay, that Lindsay mentioned something about this, that there was a bit of a disagreement there, but kind of sticking with the book and forgetting about Lindsay himself. Yeah, right. Um, because yeah, sure, I think sure. that is the strongest argument, what's in the book, that the, the thesis of an original generation of postmodernists having this kind of, uh, you know, intellectual mutation, um, you, you know, to do with accepting some kind of objective truth claims relating to, mm. uh, you know, oppression and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I gotcha. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I will say, I mean, like, this is a strange thing to say, but I mean, in some ways, the, uh, the James Lindsay thing makes more sense to me because, um, you know, I mean, even though, uh, you know, what's 
I, I think a lot of what's referred to there is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not wild about the word uh, because I, I, I guess I, I feel like off. I, I'm not always sure what that means. Uh, but but the idea that like ways that people talk about uh, social justice now, uh, which which by the way makes me a little sad because I think like social justice is a really important concept, right? What counts as social justice? Whereas I think a lot of times what people are really talking about, you know, when they they use the term, are more like uh, how you know like like the the attitudes in people's heads, right? Which, which I think is actually a separate subject. From from social justice, per, you know, properly speaking. But regardless, like like I, you know, I certainly know what you're talking about. We can just call it wokeism for the sake of you know whatever. Like at, at least if you if you're trying to to have like a line going from from Marxism to that, I still think that's wrong. But I at least sort of understand how it works. I'm a little bit more confused about how the line from postmodernism is is supposed to go, right? Because as you say, like like postmodernism, you know, to the extent that uh, you know, like I sort of said this earlier about pragmatism, but I think it's much more true of postmodernism that you know that that I'm not always sure I can wrap my head around what they what they actually mean. Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table about that. I mean, like a, a formative experience for me philosophically was um, this uh, class I took, you know, in my last semester of undergrad called. Um, contemporary philosophy uh which which in context meant contemporary continental philosophy and uh, and it was like a senior like kind of capstone seminar and it was it was run you know like a graduate seminar or something where everybody has to like take turns doing a presentation on one of the readings and the one i got was was jacques derrida's uh you know book the gift of death or part of that book and I just read it and I realized I have absolutely no idea what any of this means. And so I, I, I kind of like made something up and said it. And then I was just shocked that nobody was like, come on, man, that's clearly not, that's clearly not what he means. So what, what, you know, what, what's wrong with you? Did you not understand the book? And, and it felt very, um, you know, emperor's new clothesy to me. Uh, but to the extent that I could wrap my mind around like what, what postmodernists are trying to say, it seems like it does involve some kind of skepticism, about knowledge or truth or rationality or justification and and even what you said kind of by way of 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 explaining the Lindsay uh Pluckrose thesis um you know is sort of saying well here's the difference between you know wokeism or social justice ideology or whatever and and postmodernism you know here's here's why here's why they those seem incompatible so uh because if nothing is, you know, if nothing is objectively true, or if we could, maybe some things are objectively true, but we couldn't know it, or we couldn't have a good justification for believing it, or, or any of that stuff, right? Then, uh, then how it is, how is it that you're making uh, these confident claims about, you know, marginalized groups and oppression and all that stuff? Uh, and so, in other words, like it seems like the explanation you're giving me is an explanation of the difference between these things. So, so maybe you could say more about what they think the the thread of continuity is. 
Yeah, well, there definitely is a difference there. And I think they characterize it uh, smartly as a mutation. Uh So they're not logically consistent. The second generation of postmodernists are not logically consistent with the first generation. The continuity is this hostility towards enlightenment values. Okay, That's how they would characterize it. And you've got to acknowledge, I mean, I'm sure you recognize that there is this tremendous hostility in the, the wokists to objectivity, uh, you know, reason, science at the highest level, these concepts. I mean, it even, you know, I, I'll just take that as something you agree with unless you don't, in which case we would need to get into that. But uh, assuming that, you know, you get the same kind of hostility on the part of the 60s, you know, the, and really I'm thinking of Foucault as the godfather of the whole thing. The idea that uh. scientific institutions are really fundamentally corrupt. They're tools of a cultural establishment that has its own self-interest that it's pursuing and that needs to oppress various groups that would be a challenge to that cultural establishment. And science, Foucault, of course, thinks is, is basically just a tool. It's, it's a way to browbeat their cultural opponents. Um, and, and that is something that's mm. pretty continuous with a lot of the, the wokists and what they think about this cultural establishment that has, has all these fancy, you know, objective sounding institutions that are really just a mask for white supremacy. So I think there is a whole bunch of intellectual continuity there. It's just that on this one issue of total skepticism, they've, they've realized that you can't get anywhere with total skepticism, that you can't nucleate a social movement around total skepticism. A normal person can't be motivated by a self-contradictory ideology like that. And so they've kind of relaxed that, and, but they've maintained the core animating moral purpose of the, the original postmodern movement, which was this skepticism, not only about individual scientific claims, but just about the Western huh. project it, Western, I know that's not the greatest term, but the Enlightenment project, uh-huh. they've retained that skepticism about the overarching Enlightenment project, reason, science, progress. And they've, they've kind of had this mutated version, uh, which kind of concedes some of the fundamental thing, like something on a fundamental level about, okay, it's, it's possible to have objective truth. On, on certain very foundational things, which in their mind is the existence of oppressed groups. Does that, I mean, what do you, let me stop there. Yeah, well, it, cer- it, certainly, it certainly answers my question. Uh, I guess as to, you know, w- whether that's, you know, a fair characterization of any of the people you're talking about, I mean, like, like it, I, I guess I see a lot of variety there. I think that um, there are for sure people who, who do talk like that, um, that uh, they, you know, that like, I, I mean, you don't have to convince me that there are people in the world, you know, uh, I, I sort of think a lot of them are graduate students, you know, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how many sort of activists in the larger world really fall into it, but I'm sure, I'm sure some do, uh, who, who are very, you know, who have, who believe in some version of skepticism about our ability to figure out what's objectively true about the world using science uh, and and who and who are also very social justicey and who and you know in their own heads there's some connection between these two right like 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 I I I certainly acknowledge that that exists. Um, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I I will say that I might be at a disadvantage here in terms of um, you know familiarity with some of these positions because of course uh, you know my own academic background is is in analytic philosophy where. 
you know, lots of, you know, lots of people, especially these days are very social justice, but none of them believe any of that stuff. Right. You know, like, like they're all, you know, uh, you know, they all, they all have, um, you know, I, I think very few of them can be accused of, of hostility to enlightenment values. Uh, and whereas the person I know best who, who would describe himself as a social moderate, as a postmodernist is Thaddeus Russell, right? You know, like that, that's the person I've, I've talked to most about this, who has that position, you know, who's, who's extremely, uh, unsocial justice. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, there are people who see a connection between these, these two things. Um, I tend to think those people are just kind of confused, uh, like, like, I'm not sure that their sort of core commitments, um, really, you know, like in other words, I'm not sure that their kind of core moral and political commitments actually follow from whatever sort of kind of sort of residually postmodern skeptical kinds of things they believe. Um, in fact, I think if anything, you know, I mean, this is why I guess why you think it's a mutation, you know, because, because if anything, you know, all that stuff would, uh, you know, would, would, would get in the way, you know? So, um, you know, so there are, and, you know, like in a lot of ways, I mean, I think, look, if we're talking about like feminism or, you know, or, or, um, you know, this phrase has been really corrupted, and, you know, and, and used in, in ways that are unhelpful in the last couple of years, but, you know, anti-racism or, you know, or, or, or concern with, you know, with, with the, you know, sort of equality for gay or trans people or any of that stuff. Um, you know, like to me, I mean, there's a more straightforward line leading towards those concerns from enlightenment values. You know, this, this, this kind of, um, you know, universalism about, uh, you know, about rights, the sort of core, you know, liberalism in the, in the most, you know, generic sense, like philosophical liberalism that, you know, that everybody, uh, everybody counts the same, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, like regardless of, of their, you know, their background and, and, and that it's, and that it's deeply unjust not to treat them as if they count the same, uh, that, you know, it, you know, all of this stuff. Right. So now, that said, I mean, I know there are people who disagree with me. I, mean, I know that there are people who like write, like, you know, whatever guidelines for whatever are, you know, you'll see screenshotted on Twitter where uh, they'll, they'll say that, you know, concern with objectivity is, you know, is a, uh, uh, you know, is, is a, is a result of, you know, of, of white supremacist patriarchy or something like that. But I mean, I, I, I guess I just, maybe I just don't take that stuff seriously enough to, to, to have, thought much about the origins of it it just seems incredibly confused to me and it just it just seems like you know i, I mean in terms of their, their moral and political commitments i do have a critique of some of those guys i think that it's it's a very idealist way of looking at the world that it is really focused on the sort of causal power of people having you know slightly wrong thoughts in their heads rather than like looking at at like social you know like like structures that actually involve rights and obligations and the distribution of material resources. Uh, but like putting that aside, I mean, to the extent, you know, like to, you know, to the extent that I kind of get what their core driving moral and political commitments are, I mean, it, it just, I, I just can't see how they're doing themselves any favors by, by saying things like that. Like, like, like it, it, it's certainly not going to, you know, it's certainly not going to like attract any new converts. And, and it's not at all clear to me that it's, um, <laughs> It's not at all clear to me that the combination makes sense, right? I mean, like, like, like to the extent that the sort of mutation of postmodernism that you're describing 
underlies some of the stuff. And I, I guess I'm a little bit agnostic about that, but to, to the extent that it does, it just seems like a, a weird incoherent mess and, and they could still care about everything that they care about politically, but throw out that part. Yeah. And I, I, it's natural when you see a radical claim, like denying objectivity to think, okay, that's some fringe element of this community. I, I would just make the argument, and I think Pluckrose would as well, would as well that uh, you know it's explanatory of a lot of the behavior you see in the modern social justice movement, which you would call critical social justice. Um, yeah, it, maybe. It, may, maybe. I, I guess. I guess the one cautionary note that I would I would put in there is this idea of um, attributing attributing beliefs to people that they don't actually articulate. Uh, based on sort of working backwards from explaining their their behavior when you're unsympathetic to their behavior like like it seems to me that like you know this is kind of how um you know I mean, this is this is kind of how like a lot of the people you're objecting to end up believing that uh you know everything in the world is motivated by white supremacy and stuff like that i guess maybe you could say like well you know, you just think one of these analyses is more convincing than the other, and you know, fair enough. And we could argue about the details, but but I'm I'm very I'm very skeptical of kind of trying to like reverse engineer what people's deep philosophical commitments are from like an unsympathetic analysis of their behavior. Yeah, obviously that's always, and you're you're right to you know be cautious about that. You don't want to psychologize and get, but there is. It does seem to me there's a need in intellectual history to come up with a theory about what is the kind of psychological philosophical process by which a set of ideas in the academy ultimately catches fire in the wider culture uh, and gets you know permeated into the the kind of second layer of institutions. So I mean I. I think that project is yeah. If, if you, yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly think it could be interesting. Um, I, I would just, I mean, in a way, this kind of takes us back to what I was saying about panpsychism. You know, I, I, I just, I'm just always going to ask a lot of annoying questions about, you know, about how you know that that is what happened and 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 how sure you are about it. But, um, but that that said, I mean, there there is something interesting to to ask there. I mean, and uh, are you uh, have you read any of Matt McManus's stuff, do you know him? A little bit, yeah. And and, and I like his stuff on right-wing postmodernism. I, I think, um, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great topic yeah, that bears more. And and I would characterize Trump, for instance, as very much a pragmatist. If he's Obviously, he's never read William James, but his his mode of behavior, and this is this is an, an instance that you might criticize, his his mode of uh. behavior is almost exactly how if I were Richard Rorty, how I would design a policy, even though Richard Rorty wouldn't do it. He's obviously on the left and he, he would never. But methodologically, yeah, yeah. the idea of not thinking there's a fixed reality out there that that our truths have to correspond to, but instead thinking that there's a purpose, a, a powerful purpose that if you find something that uh, that enables you to achieve that purpose that confers truth value unto that thing and and trump seems to be that incarnate so i'm and and i think that's somewhat in the vicinity of what mcmanus was saying maybe you can um. no no i i I think that is the kind of thing that he's saying uh and and i'd kind of love to get you and him in a room to talk about this because because i i think you know like i i love matt you know i mean he's 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 one of my favorite people but i i think like sometimes the sort of what exactly the cause and effect 
you know, parts of the claim are? Is it just that it sort of, you know, permeates the culture in general? So like it, it, it sort of manifests with somebody like Trump who, you know, has certainly, you know, may have literally never read a book in his life, never mind a book of like French philosophy or, uh, you know, or, or, you know, whatever, even English language, you know, I mean, uh, Trump has not read Rorty that much. I, you know, there, that much I, I'm, I'm willing to take on faith, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting connection. I mean, I, I, I can certainly, I can certainly see what he's getting at, you know, when he says that, like, if you, if you look at the way these people act, you know, that they, they, they sure act as if they believe this, right. I mean, like, like, like even like Rorty at, at kind of his crudest when he'll say like crazy things like, you know, truth is what you can get away with, you know, that like, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's not hard to see an analogy right. there at least. Uh, but, uh, but, it, but as far as like the, the scope of what kind of cause and effect relationship he's claiming, I'm, I'm not totally sure about that. But anyway, I should, uh, I should, I should read more of what he's written about all this. And I should also read uh, cynical theories. So uh, thank you for the call. All right. Uh, let's take Andre. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> Hey, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm okay. How are you doing? I I am good. I'm good. This is really fun. Yeah, I was gonna say, are you enjoying the show so far? Definitely. I was, uh, I was psyched to I was psyched to see the I was psyched to see your name uh, on the live screen. So I was like, let me, go, let me go see what this is all about. Let me go see what this man is saying. What I can argue with him about. Nice, nice. Well, you no. uh, you got something. <laughs> no, actually, uh, nothing to, to argue about per se. I just wanted to, because I was actually just talking about this uh, with Glenn uh. a little while ago, and that is, um, I'm not sure if you saw that uh, Twitter is partnering up with a couple of agencies uh, to combat disinformation, fake news, bots, etc. Uh, yeah. Thoughts on that? I don't, have you seen that? Uh, I haven't seen that particular thing. I mean, it's, it's obviously kind of of a piece of a lot of things that have happened in the last couple of years. Um, I, I, I mean, my thought is that I'm, I, I always get real leery when I hear stuff like that. Cause um, I, I guess, I guess just kind of brass tacks. Like I don't trust them to do that. Like, like, like if, if you're, I mean, if you're combating fake news and disinformation, like how are you doing it? Right. Are you doing it by, putting out like better news and like really highlighting it or something like that, in which case that might be fine, I guess, but, or. Well, what they are, what they are doing is that, uh, they had a few, uh, organizations, uh, um, Casa de Fake News, which is a Venezuelan organization that's funded by Leopoldo Lopez. Yes. Uh, and, uh, they, they, uh, notified Twitter as to, um, disinformation campaigns that are being waged by the Venezuelan government, allegedly. And Twitter takes yeah, down those right. accounts. Uh, there's also uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which has been instrumental, I think, in um, guiding the narrative of the Uyghur genocide in in the Xinjiang autonomous region. Yeah, right. So so there's a there's a pattern here. Yeah, I start I started la- yeah. laughing when you said Lopez because uh, that really took me back because when I lived in Miami, I, I had a good friend who remained unnamed, who was married to this this Venezuelan woman who who came from, um, you know, a a very uh, a very anti Chavez family, and I used to argue with this guy about this all the time, uh, and uh, and and so that that just reminded me of that that election. Uh, 
Yeah, right. Uh, I, I mean, this is the thing. Like, like this is why this is why I always think it's a mistake, you know, for for the left to uh, to cheer on like, you know, big tech censorship. Like, I, I mean, I kind of get why sometimes people on the left do that because, like, they, you know, you'll see somebody you know that like is is like a piece of shit, you know, and and, and they're getting you know they're getting deplatformed. You're like, oh, good, you know, I, I, I hate that guy. Let's 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 get him out. Uh, but, uh, but, but I just don't trust any of, I mean, like, these are like corporations. Like I, I don't, I don't trust them to, to tell me what, you know, what's, what's real news and what's fake news. I mean, like, it is, uh, uh, like, you know, I mean, imagine this, this existed in, in 2002, right? I mean, what would be, you know, what would be censored by this? Would it be, you know, would it be like Judith Miller articles that were printed in the paper of record or would it be people who, you know, uh, who were like, you know, crazy chomps get say, no, none of this makes sense. You know, like, like this is, these are all lies. Yeah. So the problem with that is that, um, the heuristic that they used uh, was whether these, uh, accounts, they didn't necessarily have to be bots because they did differentiate accounts that were inauthentic, uh, accounts that right. weren't. And, in two cases, uh, both with accounts that were that originated from China and originated from Venezuela, yeah. uh, what they were saying was that the accounts supported the government narrative. Uh, actually, it was three. In fact, it was three. The third one was in Mexico, where the, there was accounts that were supporting uh, well, like AMLO the and, yeah. initiative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and another one in Venezuela was uh, supporting um, like anti-American and anti-imperialist like, sentiments. And a third one in, in China was uh, talking about uh, there not being any genocide in Xinjiang, which you can debate over whether th- this is true or not. But I find it a bit alarming that the accounts, because they purported a particular narrative, or they, they upheld a particular narrative, that's enough reason to strike them all together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, I mean, look, I, I mean, I think, I think there's, you know, like governments that, you know, that the... Uh, you know, and, and it's funny enough, like yeah. uh, prior to remember the November 15th, uh, you know, uh, Cuba SOS, like the free Cuba movement oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that fizzled out like after five minutes and then the organizer ended up leaving the country the next day. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So there were accounts from Cuba that were uh, tweeting like about anti uh, anti imperialist sentiment. Those got nuked. But the USA Department. Uh, farmed like hundreds of bots in the lead up to this November 15th event uh, to start talking up SOS Cuba. And this, this actually happened as well prior to right. the Bolivian protests that saw Evo Morales uh, resign mm-hmm. and uh, end up you know, being essentially exiled right. from the country. Uh, when the coup happened, there were thousands upon thousands of bots that just came up out of nowhere uh, that were supporting this, uh, this, this coup narrative. So it's interesting to me on the one hand where it's American backed or American funded um, arms and uh, illegitimate use of social media to push a narrative, not a problem, but it happens in another right. country to defend their country from imperialism. And it's a problem. Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is the thing, right. And, and like, I, I wouldn't want anyone to get this twisted that it, it, it's not that I, I don't think, you know, it's not like that. I think that like China is the only like, you know, uh, power in the world whose government never lies, right? You know, like that—that's that, clearly not you know the uh, the case. It's just that, like, 
this this i i mean the fact that like if it's china because that's like an official enemy or quasi enemy or whatever frenemy uh that uh that you know supported the chinese government narrative uh that counts as fake news and disinformation it's like i don't know i mean does does the uh does the U.S. government have a narrative? You know, like that—that's that that could be misleading. I mean, like that—that that would be a—that'd be a weird thing to to deny with a straight face, you know. But like, obviously, that's not gonna—that's not gonna get censored. And and, it, and I guess I just think like, um, you know, this is kind of a this is kind of a weird reference here because by the time he said this, he had like horrible foreign policy views. Uh, but like, there's a there's a Christopher Hitchens debate from like the late two thousands about about free speech. Uh, where he starts out talking about that thing about you know you can't say fire you know yell fire at a crowded theater, and he reminds people that uh, the actual context for that was uh, this this group of you know Yiddish speaking socialists uh, who were who had been arrested uh, for passing out anti war leaflets, and uh, and Oliver Wendell Holmes when he said that was like upholding their conviction, and 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 the way he puts it is really nice. It's like yeah, uh, sure you shouldn't put you know, yell fire in a crowded theater. But like in that example, you can certainly argue that that was a very real fire and, and those people were firefighters. But the real question is, is who gets to decide, you know, what counts as a, uh, what counts as a real fire and what doesn't. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who would like my just very strong instincts and inclination is to say, Hey, let's just like have it out. Like just, just let everybody say whatever. And, you know, and, 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 and let's, you know, let's just fight about it. But, um, but like, even if you didn't think that, right? I mean, even if you did think that like some views were really dangerous and shouldn't be allowed and all that stuff, I, I guess I'm just very confused by why anybody who wasn't, you know, like a supporter of the U.S. government would trust like these these tech platforms, these like these 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 corporations as the ones who who get to decide, right? Because because like that they're, they're not. Uh, you know, like if you have any kind of like progressive or leftist, you know, pro worker, you know, kind, kinds of views. I mean, these these people are not going to be on your side in the long run because it's a fucking fascist, and we can discuss this other stuff later. Like everything's always, everything is already always an emergency. <laughs> so you know, whenever whenever you have an extraordinary circumstance, like I don't know, like a president that you don't like getting elected, then all of the considerations are put on hold, uh, and you give up those freedoms that you say that you hold essential. Um, but then you never fight to get them back again. So you have uh, congressional hearings uh, for uh, you know for Facebook, etc., in which there are uh, you know groups of there's groups of people um, yeah. both in the political and the media sphere, yeah. all but like calling for Facebook to essentially become a media and censorship company. Yeah. But the problem with Facebook isn't just what speech is on there. The problem with Facebook is how fast speech gets propagated because they're effectively a monopoly. So they're, they don't have a problem with Facebook continuing to maintain its monopoly power as long as they can use that monopoly power to their own advantage, you know, confer the power that Facebook has to the government. But they don't have a problem. So they don't have a problem with that, but they do have a problem with narratives that they don't like and language they don't like being propagated. Yeah, I mean, it just seems incredibly short-sighted to me. Like, um, you know, I, I mean, presumably, I mean, especially people who who are like, you know, your your kind of AOC types who who are, you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe more you know moderate than you'd like, maybe even more moderate, you know, than I would. But like, 
you know, there, there, there's some kind of commitment to at least, you know, at least like roughly, you know, robustly like left social democratic politics that are supporting, you know, supporting this kind of like censorship that like, again, presumably like in the long run, I, I don't see how you can have those politics and possibly believe that, uh, that, that these giant for-profit corporations that are very cozy with the U S government are, are going to, uh, are going to be on, on your side. And, and, and I think, the thing that you said about the monopoly powers is, is a really important point because um, ultimately what's the solution, right? Like, um, I mean, you could, people will use the phrase break them up and I'm a little skeptical about what that even really means in practice. Like you could, you could do a certain amount of, um, you know, the Facebook doesn't have to own, you know, Facebook messenger, never mind Instagram. And, you know, you could do a certain amount of that stuff, but like if one company just, like if all if if YouTube is separate from Google and and all that company owns is YouTube, that's still a crazy it's amount. It's a huge company, yeah. Yeah, that and, and it's not only a huge company; it's a huge company that has a crazy amount of control over the flow of information in our society. You know, so I mean, it doesn't really seem like that solves the problem. And you know, you you could say, um, you know, take them into to public ownership, which would actually be my preference. But the uh, these guys aren't going to say that. And I think the reason they're not going to say that is that if it's a, uh, you know, if it's a publicly owned company, then I think the first amendment issue. Sounds a little too much. Yeah. Like well, for sure. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it for some of them, but like also like uh, also I think it would actually be harder for them to get away with this kind of censorship because like for the same reason that like when like Ronald Reagan was governor of California and he wanted to, uh, you know, to get the University of California to fire Angela Davis for, you know, for membership in the, the Communist Party, uh, you know, like the courts said, no, you can't do that. Like, you have to come up with another excuse, right? You know, but at least you can't do that uh, because, you know, the University of California is a public institution. And so it's like a First Amendment problem to fire people in a way that's not for private employers to fire people. And so similarly, if like, you know, Twitter, or YouTube uh, were publicly owned, then, I think it would be a first amendment problem to, to do as much censorship as, as they're, as they're doing. I mean, like you could probably still have some content moderation rules. Like, like you can't go to the like open comment section of a city council meeting and just start like screaming, like swear words at the, you know, at, at, at them. Like, like there, there probably still be some rules, but like just saying like, Oh, anything that we, you know, that in our judgment is fake news, you know, you can't have on there. Like, I, I mean, you know, it, it would be, I mean, I'm not saying that they wouldn't do it anyway, but it would be pretty blatantly inconsistent if you said, yeah, that, like a public institution is allowed to do that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But um, I just wanted to get your, your, your two cents on that. Um, but I should probably go because I've got uh, my kids to bathe. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, can, I, can, I can hear them in the background. <laughs> yeah, I should probably go um, and get my kids a bath. But, uh, you know, uh, good luck on the new show. Uh, glad that everything's working out for you so far and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, take it easy. All right, you too. All right. Uh, so if I accidentally kicked anybody out of the queue, please do come back and I will call on you. But uh, meanwhile, uh, let's get Chris. Hey, Ben, can you hear me? Absolutely. Hey, yes, I think you did kick me out of the queue, so I'm, or the queue, so I'm, I'm, I'm furious, but I've forgiven you. <laughs> well, that is a relief. What's on your mind? I just wanted to pop in. I, I saw you advertising this on Twitter, and it seems like an awesome idea. Um, and so I quickly thought of a question I wanted to ask you. Awesome. What is 
what do you think is the most plausible line or lines of empirical evidence that might cause you to question your own views of democratic socialism and be more favorable towards something more capitalist aligned? Yeah, that's a great counterfactual question. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, you know, I, I guess I'd really want to separate out two issues here to try to think about that. I mean, like, I obviously just don't have an answer off the top of my head, right? You know, like, I know you're not a consequentialist, so you could make it about a, a line of moral argumentation if that seems more relevant. Well, to you. I'm not a consequentialist. Uh, and, and I should just say for anybody who, you know, who's listening, I mean, I think you're being pretty careful about how you use the term for the sound of it. But for anybody who's listening, who isn't clear on the idea, right? Like what I mean when I say I'm not a consequentialist is that I don't think that justice or morality are just about consequences. I think that there are non-consequence things that could also matter that, but that's certainly sometimes, but also that consequences do matter. They're just not all Yeah, consequences for sure matter, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it, it would be a crazy view of, of justice where like, it just didn't matter if your like preferred policies led to like mass starvation. That would just be irrelevant to how just or unjust they were, right? Like that—that that would be certainly not a view that I would hold. Like that's an extreme example, but I mean, like that—that that, uh, that gets the idea across. Like uh, even you know my favorite, uh, yeah, I think I would say my favorite. You know, uh, like moral and you know, or political philosopher, particularly G. A. Cohen, who's certainly not a consequentialist. Uh, you know, but he does say, like, like in his book, Why Not Socialism, that uh, there are trade-offs that could exist between, uh, well, the way he puts it is justice and efficiency. And, and he sort of says, well, you could sacrifice a certain amount of efficiency for the sake of justice. Uh, and But, like, he clearly doesn't think that, like, there's no limit to that, right? Like, that, like it just doesn't, yeah. it just doesn't matter how much economic inefficiency you have, like, you know, for just a little bit of justice, you know, you can have all the economic inefficiency in the world. Cause again, that'd be a crazy, that'd be a crazy view. And, and it's, and it's, it's not only sort of philosophically a crazy view, but also like one that like anybody with a radical political project would be very badly advised to, to do because like, you know, if you, if the effect of your preferred economic policies, and I mean, forget mass starvation, if it's just that like you have the Soviet grocery store problem, then I don't know how long your new system's going to last, right? You know, before you sure. know, people want to go back to the old one. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a totally legitimate, you know, question. I, I think, uh, so yeah, the two, the two issues I want to separate out a little bit, though, I was going to say are about, um, you know, facts and values. So I think that, um, you know, I think there's a sort of minimalistic sense in which, there's no empirical evidence that would stop me from having like socialist values that might lead me to want like whatever I thought the closest was to my ideals that could be enacted without, you know, leading to disaster. Right. You know, so, uh, so that one, you know, to, to, to dislodge me from that, it would have to be a moral argument and it's, and it's really hard to see for, I mean, and, and, I, I guess I would just say, like, by, almost by definition, it would have to be some moral argument that it just like never that you can't. That I can't think of because I could think, if I could think of it, I'd have a position on it, right? So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that like it's it's like one of those things, like, um, yeah, I, I mean, if if you could um, 
I can, I can relate with what you're saying, which is, I think, probably the reason I phrased it initially as an empirical argument, because it's it's easier to picture a situation in which your your moral reasoning and intuitions go really strongly one way, but some kind of bare bones, like the example yeah, yeah. Le- leading to starvation, makes you think, well, I don't know what it is, but clearly something's wrong with my moral worldview. And yeah, that's right. good enough for me. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and like... I guess I would say that it, it it's already the case that there is empirical evidence that leads me to uh, to reject some things that like all else being equal as as a values question I'd be I'd be more sympathetic to right like like in other like uh, like in other words like a, a sort of having like uh, a you know a fully planned economy is something yeah if you were if you were a leftist in the 1890s you might take a different view on that totally yeah absolutely um I, I, right i mean i think i think i almost certainly you know like like if you could like <laughs> if you could like transplant like me and, and and all of my normative commitments and blah 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 uh, but just somehow magically like like it was it was the 1890s uh then yeah for sure i would right you know like because because i i would have no uh, you know, I mean, that would be before people were even like really like sort of making theoretical predictions along these lines very much, never mind, you know, having empirical evidence. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. I think Benjamin Tucker and his, the Liberty crowd were, if you want to consider them leftists. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, uh, I mean, that's a weird, ambiguous case, uh, because, uh, the, like the Benjamin Tucker, of uh, people who don't know who that is, I mean, that, that's a, that's this like, I, I, it's it's really hard to know what word to use because, like, I, I almost said anarchist, and a lot of things he says sound sound very anarchisty, but it's not actually totally clear to me that that that's definitely his real that like you would exactly call him that. But anyway, it doesn't matter, right? He's he's this sort of anarch. He seems to me like a like a left leaning libertarian who doesn't who believes in uh, really strong uh, like abandonment claims to property, like that you. Right justifiably lose a claim to your property if you're not more or less using it on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that, that seems right. So, uh, yeah, that fits with everything I know about him. So, uh, so yeah, like, 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 so somebody who's like very confusing to us, uh, unless, unless you hang out in certain extraordinarily niche, uh, you know, crowds, uh, because, you know, he believes a lot of libertarian-ish kinds of things, but like is also very, uh, you know, very pro-squatter basically, and and uh, and 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 has sort of like vaguely market socialisty ideas about how he would like it if things worked out. Although he's certainly not going to like use state action to, to 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 get them to work out that way. So maybe a way to say it is his. I I, I think this is right. His probably his two biggest philosophical influences are Herbert Spencer and Proudhon. Yeah, right. There you go. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that like, I already like, don't, um, you know, and, and actually I could even really be more specific about this. It's not just that if I lived in the 1890s, I would advocate that, right. It's that like, you know, uh, from what I can recall when I was 25, I did advocate that, right. You know, like it's, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as like kind of a, you know, as, as like a young Trotskyist, you know, who, who hadn't thought about this stuff very much yet. Uh, you know, like, like, like if you'd asked me how I, how I thought the economy should work, you know, after the revolution or whatever, I, I, I would have said, um, indicated some sort of strong support for all that. Whereas I think they, now I think if you look at the economic history of the 20th century, 
uh, it seems to be the case that 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 is um, you know that 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 doesn't work very well. And and you could do the theoretical thing where you say uh, like okay, uh, I mean this is high, I don't want to caricature it, uh, but because what they say about this is really nuanced, but it is kind of what my friend Lee Phillips uh, and his co-author Mikhail Rzorski say in People's Republic of Walmart, uh, or at least they, they suggest some sympathy with this, that like, you know, the problem with the Soviet economy uh, isn't, isn't the, the planning, it's the, uh, the lack of democracy. But then like, you know, maybe this is just too like sort of simple-minded to take on this, but like, I just think, well, okay, you could imagine a version of the Soviet Soviet economy where you just layered political democracy on top. So you had, uh, you know, a free press and multi-party elections, and whoever won the you know majority or plurality in uh, in parliament that year got to appoint the head of the Soviet planning office, Gushplan. Uh I believe that that version of the Soviet Union would have been way better than what existed. Uh, that like it certainly would have avoided the uh, the worst. Like, like, like the worst horrors of like the Stalin years. That, like, I don't think the, you know, I, I don't think the Ukrainian famine would have happened if Stalin was worried about whether the Ukrainians were going to vote for him in the next election. Uh, sure. But do I believe that it would have actually been more any more efficient on a day to day basis in terms of the sort of like petty frustrations of Soviet consumers, like in say like the eighties when they were going to do grocery shopping at like the state owned grocery store in Leningrad, probably not. Like I, I, I don't sure. really see how that would have helped. seems like it would eliminate a lot of outright malice, but not necessarily incompetence or just informational problems. Yeah. And, and I think, I think particularly like the informational problems, like I think right now the sort of, um, you know, there are people who would disagree with this, but like, I, I would be a very hard sell on saying that this isn't true. Right. That they, that right now, we don't know how to run a modern, complicated, developed society with an incredibly complex division of labor and and, and an incredibly wide variety of consumer preferences and all that stuff without having uh, price signals, at least at least for some kinds of goods, right? That they that you have to, you know, that like there's there's just no way for you know for your central planning office to. Uh, to have enough information and there are also issues about incentives and other things. Now, what I would say though, and this takes us back to your question is, okay. So given all that, right. Given that there are certain things that my ideological enemies would say that are, unfortunately I think are politically empirically true. And so like, I have to, adjust, I have to adjust for them when I think about how to enact my preferred values in the real world. Uh, at least right now. I mean, that's, I mean, let's not close the door on like, you know, it, you know, progress happening in the future right you know that uh you know but at least right now i don't i don't think we know how to do a fully planned economy without leading to those results um you know if, if future some supercomputers can give us red plenty on for it but like uh but but we can at least have uh basically a sort of baseline of super expansive social democracy and then if we still you know like like i think healthcare for example, is just a very different beast than 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 consumer goods industries that like uh, that I think healthcare by its like by its nature it's a little paternalistic and that's fine right like 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 my doctor knows more than I do about medicine and you know and 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 I'm 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 good with like just just saying like 
you know, like I, given the same physical conditions, I need the same stuff as anybody else. I think that really simplifies a lot of the information problems. Uh, you know, there are arguments that people make about medical innovation. I'm not very convinced by them, but like, uh, if, I guess, I guess maybe that might start getting into it, right? But I was just going to say uh, that I think right now, I, I think, you know, we can have as a sort of baseline a super expansive welfare state. We could decommodify things like healthcare and education. And, uh, and if we do still need a market for consumer goods, we could at least have that be a market where the producers are worker-owned uh, firms. And, you know, it's, it's not quite the first chapter of the Gotha program, but it, it, it critique the Gotha program, but it does get me a lot of the stuff that I want. And that's a world that I feel fairly confident that we could have. So what would convince me that we can't have that world? Um, or that's, that's, that's too strong. What would give you pause we'll give and pause, make you, right? okay. you know, lean, lean much more heavily towards, you know, we need, we just need Canada or something, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, I guess. Or an idealized version of that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, like, I don't remember who I'm stealing this from. Cause this, I remember reading this article in, in dissent. I think it was a dissent a long time ago. Um, but the woman's name who wrote it has, has totally escaped me, but uh, she uses this phrase like slightly imaginary Sweden, uh, you know, for, <laughs> I think, I, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, what would convince me that we had to just live with slightly imaginary Sweden that we couldn't have, uh, that we couldn't have this sort of like, post-capitalist world that I would like. Um, I, I guess... And not even what specifically, what, what type of... Yeah, what, what, what type what of... Type of and, and, and right, and not just what would convince me of that, but what would give me pause about, like, what would pull me in the direction of thinking that might be true. Um, I guess it would have to be some kind of empirical evidence about, about like, actually existing worker co-ops. I think that would probably be the, the, the best way of doing that. Like, if you had... Um, you know, like if there was some great new empirical evidence that suggested that like the reason there aren't very many worker co-ops under capitalism isn't, you know, any of the things I would list off if we had that argument, but it, it, it's just that they don't work very well uh, and that there's and that there's some like, structural reason they don't work very well. Like I, that would, I mean, now, depending on what the reason was, maybe I would think, oh, okay, that's okay. Here's a different way we could do it that would accommodate that, whatever, right? But like, you know, but certainly that's the kind of thing that would give me pause and, and that might like inch me towards thinking that we had to have to live with slightly imaginary Sweden. That's a good and very specific answer. Um, I think, yeah, that makes sense to me. What, what if it, what if it turned out that the, the reason that they're not common is something more like there are more, more and more uh, hard to detect state imposed, Wow. Um, like impediments to worker co-ops forming along the lines of like relatively standard Western common law property rights. Uh, sorry. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, can you, can you say the last part again? Cause I, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm following. That, that, that the re what if, you know, the empirical evidence you turned up showed that the reason worker co-ops are not more prevalent is more to do with, like a proliferation of state impediments to their existence that maybe are hard oh, to detect. Oh, okay. I, I, I understand yeah. what you're asking. Like yeah. Un, under like capitalist property rights systems, they would tend to outcompete, you know, right, right, right. boss run for like, that's, I, I bring that up. Cause that's the line. That's a line of argument of like the people. At, Kevin like, Carson. People like that. Kevin yeah. Carson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So that's good. So, um, 
Yeah. I think that leads them to feel like I'm very much a leftist for this reason, but still find myself in kind of a property rights oriented, you know, left Lockean libertarian camp. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I actually, as, as niche as that is, uh, you know, that like, there are like 10 of these guys, uh, that, that, that is it. <laughs> 12. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, you know, that is a position that I have spent a lot of time thinking about the last several years. Cause, 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 you know, one of the 12 is, is somebody who's, uh, I mean, I only know from social media, but like relative to that, he's a good friend, right. You know, relative to people I only know from social media, like he's somebody I've interacted with extensively over the course of the last several years, Nick Manley, but, um, what, what, what I was going to ask if you would name drop him, what, what was his name? Nick Manley. Okay. That's not one that I know. Yeah. I, 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 I think he has probably written stuff for C4SS, but I, I don't think he's done it under his real name. But I also think that like, I also think, I mean, I, I'm not worried that I'm going to have to trim this from the, from the podcast version. I, I, I think he has said enough publicly under his own name about what his politics are. He'd be okay with this. But, um, but in any case, uh, yeah, so, uh, I actually did a debate with him like on YouTube last year about whether there's, uh, it, it's called something like, is there anything of value in the philosophy of Ayn Rand? And, and he's, he's like critical of Rand for lots of reasons that you would expect because he has these like, these kind of politics that you're talking about, but he also has like a soft spot for and doesn't reject that stuff as much as I would. But in any case, uh, yeah, right. Uh, so of course I don't think that the empirical premise is true, but if I, if there was some, if there was some great new evidence that indicated that it was, yeah, that would definitely give me pause. I'm not sure it would like, even if it was really, really good evidence, I'm not sure it would get me all the way to agree with them. Uh, because, um, because I think that like whether there are a lot of co-ops is certainly a really important thing to me, but it's, it's definitely not the only important thing to me. Right. Like, so, uh, sounds like that might get you to expansive welfare state plus a more unregulated market because you're confident it would lead to worker co-ops rather than Walmart. Yeah. Right. That, that sounds about, that sounds right to me. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. I should probably run, uh, one last thing sure. on, on the C4SS note. Yeah. I've loved all of your, all of your modern day debates with, um, libertarians. I think you do a great job with that. Speaking as a libertarian, you don't talk down to people and you, you take the time to understand. And if you haven't ever debated him, I recommend Roderick Long as someone I think you'd oh, get along yeah. with and debate well with. Oh yeah. That, that, that's an interesting idea. Definitely think about that. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. This is great. So let us... Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Let's get uh, Sean. I kind of went back around the line, if that's okay. I I don't know what the policy is, but, you know, it seems like... uh, No, no, no. Go go, go dots. Go dots. Let's let's do it. Yeah, I I had maybe a fun question for you, which is, um, you know, I I feel like at this point, um, maybe both sides of the... Or let me put it this way. Both of the relatively extreme or sides of the political aisle. Uh, yeah. I think we're in some type of late stage, I think at this point, like, you know, the, the right wing seems to have gone, you know, maybe a little bit fascist, but they're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure the capitalist thing is working anymore. Like maybe yeah, we're yeah, going to yeah. have to have some type of authoritarian, uh, you know, economy of some sorts. Um, I don't know, kind of ruled by, I don't know, oligarchs or I don't know how, what their vision looks like. Well, that, that might be a good question. What do you think that the 
So with both sides kind of believing or seeming to, to believe or intuiting that capitalism is kind of in some kind of late stage or different stage or weird stage, what do you think that the, the right wing's vision of the future is going to look like if it's not this kind of at least gestured at laissez-faire model? And what do you think the coming years look like? Like, you know, hey, what's, what's your investment strategy, right? Like, where, where are you putting... <laughs> not yeah, not yeah. Investment strategy, but like, are you, you know, buying some property in the woods because everything's going to fall apart? Like, what do you, you think is going to happen in the next few years? Yeah, well, you know, half of my millions are in gold and the other half is in crypto. I mean, just like you'd expect. Uh, no, uh, I, 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 you know, there, there's, there's, there's nothing like enough money in my bank account for that to be an issue. But um the uh you know in any case um yeah uh I, yeah just being able to do a little bit of traveling and stuff is is you know is already is already great but um so yeah i, I guess i heard a couple of things there and and i'm not sure this is going to get at everything you're asking about but let me let me try to get at least get a couple parts of it so one is uh like you know, basically, do I think everything's going to fall apart? Uh, you know, like, like uh, and and no, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, I, I I think that um, you know that that's not to say that there aren't lots of things that could get worse because for sure there are, and you know, some of them probably you know some of them will. Um, you know, I I think, uh, but I, I don't think like that sort of like civilizational collapse. You know, go go you know, go get a cabin in the woods, you know, kind of, kind of thing, uh, that that's not something I, I see any reason to, to believe. Right. I mean, I think that like, you know, what, I mean, when I think about what I would understand to be the kinds of like things that could happen, for example, is like catastrophic effects of runaway climate change. Um, you know, I, I, I could, there are like pretty grim things that I would take seriously. Like, uh, you know, as like, you would not have to get very much of the world to be uninhabitable, to have refugee crises that just like dwarf anything that we've ever seen before. And you put that together with the rise of what, like, you know, I don't like this phrase because I don't really think they're populist, but just for the sake of, you know, the sake of uh, ease of expression, let's call the right rise of right wing populism. And you put those two things together. I mean, that, that can get very, very, very ugly. Right. Like, but, um, but I, I don't think it's the same kind of ugliness that would be like, Oh, everything's going to collapse. And we're going to have this crazy regression. Uh, I mean, whatever, lots of things have happened in the last few years that I wouldn't have thought would have happened. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but that that's, you know, but, but if you're asking about like my sense of things that, that would not be it. Uh, as far as the question about the right wing, I, I think that, um, I think there's definitely a big rhetorical shift on the right wing, uh, that, that, that's already happened. As as to whether it turns into a substantive shift, I'm a little bit more more skeptical. But I guess I guess we could see what happens. I mean, it's not like there's no precedent in history for any right wingers under any circumstances, you know, having like 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 really hurting in you know directions that are very unwise fair, right? I mean, that's clearly happened before, and and it it could you know there could be circumstances where it happened again. I guess I will just say that, like, when I look at the current crop of right wingers who've shifted to less capitalism celebrating rhetoric, um, I mean, I just think that stuff is like a—it's it, it, not even an inch deep. It's like a—it's like a sixteenth of an inch deep. Like, uh, I mean, this is kind of what the Charlie Kirk debate was all about. That, like, 
and and why I wanted to why I wanted to debate that dude in the first place because I see him like hanging out on air with JD Vance and they're both using the word corporate as an insult and you know they 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 like to call themselves populists and you know they'll they'll say things like oh you know we're not the same old kind of Reagan Bush William F Buckley you know Republican you know like that you know we're not like those corporate Republicans you know we're we're very populist. And, and I'm just like, what the hell do you even think you're talking about? This is just nonsense. Like, that was one of your most brilliant moments when you were, I think you said, well, are you okay with raising Jeff Bezos' taxes? To, you know, he's, he's kind of gesturing out like, oh, yeah, we need to you know, increase wages. Yeah. More social He's like, well, are you cool with uh, we increase Jeff Bezos' taxes? He's like, um, uh, maybe, no, not really. Maybe, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like that 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 one's just amazing because like he he was trying to score populism points earlier by by like trashing Bezos and it's like okay, great. Like can we raise his taxes 1 1%, right? Like uh, you know, like and, nope. and you know, if it was going to pay for like housing for like every single veteran who's living on the streets, uh, you know, which is which is not a, you know, which is not a, you know, the suggestion isn't original to me, but I was I was just like, all right, well at this point would you endorse that? And, uh, and yeah, he did exactly what you're, you're describing. Like that, that, like from his perspective, that's like a really hard question. And he's still probably going to say no, which I think really shows how absurd it is to like claim that there's something populist or anti-corporate about any of these people. They're just rigidites, you know, that, that they don't. So here's uh, my question. Are, are they then just basically dog whistling like gestures that I, I, and again, I, I kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to throw these words around yeah, like yeah. willy nilly, but like white supremacy or it like shroud they're shrouding these ideas like he's just like i like the family and it's like is that is that code for white supremacy is that code for well, they just I, I, I don't i mean i don't think it's code for i think in that case it's probably not code for white supremacy i think it's uh, you know I, I think it would probably be more likely to be code for like something that would be you know like really reactionary but probably not about race it's probably more about like gender and sexuality and all that stuff uh you know, I, I mean, you know, I mean, just, I mean, this is just me spitballing, but like, you know, like when I hear a right winger, like, you know, say that, like, it's like, okay, either it's just rhetorical fluff, which, you know, to be fair, it might be a lot of what these guys say is rhetorical fluff, uh, but uh, either it's rhetorical fluff or there's some kind of socially conservative thing going on here. Cause if it's not either of those, then I, I don't, I don't know what the third option is. Like, I, I guess to be fair, some of them will actually like the one social program they would support would be like, um, you know, would, would be like direct financial support, you know, when people have children and, um, and, and I guess if you want to make the connection with, you know, with, with racism, um, like I, I do think that some of these people who make a huge deal about being, you know, right wing populist allegedly, are like have like really like disgusting politics on immigration and and there's probably and there probably is a relationship between those two things right you know because um like at their at their most like crazy and ugly moments you'll see people like charlie kirk like saying like ooh you know all these mexicans coming over here you know like well like the uh you know they're, they're not going to vote for republicans you know we can't have that right you know like and, and, and so yeah I should throw this out there too, based on yeah. what the last the last caller talking about. Um, you know, like what would what would kind of compel you towards some not yeah. like some alternative views, and combined with the, with the immigration. Yeah. Issue, I think like the best version of right wing populism that I that might be actually somewhat coherent yeah. is uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered Eric Weinstein at all, but he's he's probably got the best version that I've encountered, where he's like I'm anti immigration, or I shouldn't say he's not anti immigration. He's like 
on for these like very robust borders. But that's because I'm trying, yeah. and I think he legitimately wants to protect American labor. And he's got like a lot of interesting, you know, support for Bernie Sanders, but then he'll turn around and, you know, suck up to Elon Musk. So I'm like, I don't know where this guy's at, but it seems to be the most cogent, like, yeah, I mean, this, I've encountered. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing, like, I mean, I mean Eric Weinstein, I, I certainly wouldn't claim to be super familiar with. Uh, my impression is that both Weinstein brothers have gone off in some pretty strange directions, like, like really in the last like year or so, especially, uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, with the election and COVID and all that stuff. But, uh, but like the sort of claim that people are against immigration or at the very least want to like um, really like uh, crack down on, on undocumented immigration because they're concerned about protecting American labor. It's like maybe in Eric Weinstein's case, that's sincere. I mean, if, you know, like I know the Weinsteins did support Bernie Sanders at one point, although I don't think they did in 2020, but whatever. Uh, but, um, but like, I think generally when I hear this stuff from self-described right-wing populists, I, I mean, I just have a really hard time taking it seriously. Cause it's like, okay, wait a second. How is it that Tucker Carlson cares about American labor when the issue is like rounding up and kicking out Mexicans, but like, he doesn't give a shit when the issue is like, you know, raising the minimum wage by a few dollars so people can buy groceries. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, 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 just, it, just, it just seems extraordinarily selective. You know, when the issue is like pitting one group of workers against another group of workers, then this concern about native born American labor, you know, like, like comes out. Right. You know, but like when it's like pitting workers as a whole against bosses as a whole, then like that concern is is nowhere to be seen. So so I I mean I guess to maybe try to give a better answer to part of this, I think that um, I, I think that there are circumstances under which you have had right wing populists for whom the populism wasn't wasn't bullshit. Right? Maybe not. Like maybe there's some ultimate sense in which it is because like obviously I think that if you really care about helping ordinary people, you know you have to become a socialist. But uh, you know, but mm-hmm. like. But it's certainly not like pure bullshit the way that it is in like America in 2021, right? Like the, uh, that, um, that they will, you know, there have, there are probably places in the world today where, where some of those kinds of politics exist more. Like you get people who like really do have deeply right wing views, but who are also willing to support like a lot more like social spending and stuff like that. I think that there's probably more room for that in like uh, the developing world in like some sort of like unstable post-Soviet States and places like this, because like the local, um, you know, the local ruling class is just much weaker, you know, than, than it is, uh, than it is here. So I think there's more room for sort of doing what like the, the kind of old style Marxist way of saying this is like Bonapartism sort of trying to play different parts of society off each other or have some kind of grand, you know, compromise between everybody. And it's like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to kill all the communists, but we're also going to give you some more social welfare spending. And, you know, like, like I, I think there's probably more room for that kind of politics in those sorts of countries. But like, I think it's just going to be very, very difficult in, in, in a advanced capitalist democracy where, you have like the most entrenched ruling class in the world, you know, the United States uh, to, um, you know, to have this political party that has always been like thoroughly in their pockets. I and mean, not that the Democrats aren't too, they are, but like, you know, but, but, but in a more extreme way, 
that, you know, that you're going to have like, you know, like certainly like it, it's very hard to imagine a certain set of circumstances under which all these right wing, you know, politicians, you know, your Rubios and your Cruises and your JD Vances and your Trumps and all these people are really going to start uh, walking, uh, walking the walk. I mean, I think if that happens, it's probably going to coincide with that sort of degree, you know, with like some greater degree of social collapse than I was, I was sort of allowing earlier as, as, as like something that's realistically mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. happen. So, I mean, like, yeah, that, I mean, and I'm not going to, you know, like never say never, right. Like, uh, you know, that like, again, I, I, as I said earlier, um, you know, the last, I feel like the last like six years has been nothing but shit that I thought would never happen, happening. Right. You know, so like, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, my, my crystal ball is worthless. Right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and, and, and say that I have like any great special insight into, um, you know, it, into what's gonna, you know, like what sort of unpredictable, crazy things are going to happen. I mean, like we, we've had, the really bad versions, you know, with Trump and COVID and other things. And we've had like, you know, we, we've had good, like, like, I, mean, I don't know, somebody in 2015 had told me that there was going to, that like um, in three years, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was going to be like the most popular politician in the country. And there would be like, you know, whatever we're up to now, like eight or something, you know, Congress people who call themselves socialists. Like I would, you know, and, and DSA is going to be like 10,000 times the size it is, you know, whatever. Like I, I would have thought that that person was delusional. Uh, so, so, so good unpredictable things happen too, but I mean, certainly the, the bad ones do, but I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I guess the thing that I feel confident about is at least so long as, as American society more or less continues to, to look the way it looks right now. I don't think that kind of balance of class forces is going to result in a breed of right-wing politicians who a take the economic populism seriously and b hold any kind of political power. Right. Cause like, uh, cause, cause I just don't see like, you know, like, like, look, I mean, I, to try to be more concrete than maybe I have been so far. Um, why, what, like, let's say that everything had happened exactly the way we wanted it to happen. in, in like 2016, that uh, that you know Bernie Sanders had had won the nomination and then he he became president and uh, and and he was like you know he was like using his influence to you know to to you know like uh, you know support primary challengers and stuff like that and like like there were just like there were just like a couple of years that just went exactly the way that we would want them to go. Um, would he be able to push through his platform? Well, I mean, probably not all of it, uh, but to the extent that he was able to, I think it would have had to involve a lot of grassroots mobilization in particular, it would have had to involve like really, you know, rebuilding the the labor movement to a much greater extent than, you know, than, than anything we've seen happen. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, if you had a president who really took that stuff seriously, like the person with the biggest spotlight in the world was like walking picket lines and stuff, then who knows, right? What could happen? But, uh, you know, could certainly make some big strides in that direction. But I guess one reason why, like, I am very skeptical about right-wing populism is that, okay, on the left, organized labor could play that role as a sort of counterweight, you know, to, uh, to the power of, of entrenched economic interests and something that has played that role in the past. 
but as long as as long as those entrenched interests are as powerful as they are right now, and they're not just so terrified of losing everything that they're willing to just you know whatever like roll over. Um, I don't see what the equivalent force is on the right that could play that kind of that kind of role. I mean, that, that's why I, I think that's probably the biggest reason that I'd be the most skeptical. Great right. answer. Thanks, man. All right, thank you. All right, let's get Matthew. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Ben. Um, I'm wondering if a uh, bit of a change of speed here. I'm wondering if sure. you have any uh, thoughts or if you followed the whole saga of certain people within the DSA trying to expel Jamal Bowman. Oh yeah. Over his, uh, Palestine uh-huh. stances. Yeah. Uh, I, I basically know that that's been happening. I certainly have not followed it in any kind of granular detail. Uh, I, I've seen, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that it's like, you can't be on Twitter and follow a bunch of leftists without knowing in broad strokes, you know, what's going on. But, uh, but, but, but I certainly haven't like done a deep dive on it. Like, as I understand it, like there are a few things that are motivated in that. Like one of them is that he uh, is like a trip. He took to Israel. One of them is like a speaking thing at J street and probably the biggest one. And I think the one that's probably the, the sort of strongest case for, for uh, you know, for, like, DSA expressing its displeasure in a stronger way that it's done is, is that he did actually vote yes on the Iron Dome fund, funding, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he took, t- he took two votes recently that people are uh, rightly upset about. One of them was on the sort of regular military aid package mm-hmm. to Israel, which is uh, already kind of supposed to... Um, supposed to go through based on the memorandum of understanding that uh, Obama made with Netanyahu, I think in 2014 or sometime around there. Um, and he voted yes on that. Um, I think a couple, a couple people voted no on that, but even Ilhan Omar voted yes on that one. Yeah. Um, and then there was the iron dome one, which is an extra, uh, yeah, right. extra billion that wasn't planned as part of that. Um, memorandum of understanding, and of course, AOC famously and tearfully voted Vote president. president yes. Well, uh, Bowman <clears throat> voted yes on that one, so people were really upset about that. And then, yeah, like you said, he he went on a trip to Israel that was sponsored by J Street, which is a liberal Zionist right. um, lobby group, which <laughs> describes itself as being pro-Israel. Uh, but also pro-Palestinian and anti-occupation, but they uh, support yeah, U.S. military aid to Israel. They oppose yeah, BDS right. and stuff like that. Yep. Um, and then the last piece of it was after that trip, he did a like a Zoom um, town hall event with a J Street U, which is um, the name of J Street's campus. Chapters. I forget mm-hmm. the university that was that it was at, but he basically talked on Zoom to a bunch of college kids about his trip and answered questions and stuff. And on the trip, he you know he uh, he did visit the West Bank. He visited uh, Hebron and did a tour with Breaking the Silence, right? Which is a uh, anti-occupation Israeli group, and um, he. 
you know, he posted a, a picture where he's in Hebron and talking about how, how, you know, saying end the occupation, but then he also posed in a picture with um, the Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who's very far right. And right. with Yair Lapid, who's um, more center, but is supposed to become prime minister next year. If the governing coalition is still together. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I'm more, uh, you know, I'm more upset about the votes than, than the photo ops, but, but I get the point. Um <laughs> I mean, I guess to make this a more interesting answer than it would be if I just sort of narrowly stayed a moment, you know, because I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, how much interested I have to say about that. But I mean, I will get back to Bowman. I mean, you know, to lay my own cards on the table, like uh, there was definitely a point in my life where I don't think I was ever quite as... uh, as as you know centrist on this is j street right like i think i think even at my worst i probably would have said no obviously there shouldn't be u.s military aid to israel um but um you know but there was you know there was for sure like a a point when um i was you know in in college uh and 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 just a little bit you know just a little bit after uh, you know, when, you know, was in the course of sort of exploring, you know, that side of my family roots. Uh, I, I like, I, I read like to magazine a lot, you know, if you're familiar with that, I, I had, I was really influenced by the yeah. sort of, the sort of stuff that like people like Michael Lerner, you know, were, 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 were saying about this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was definitely a sort of like probably on the left end of, but like still definitely, you know, way too sympathetic to a kind of like two state liberal Zionism. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think that what changed over the years for me is that uh, a combination of things, like one of it is just like sort of seeing over the years, like what a bad joke that the so-called peace process is and, and, and how like fantastical it is to like think that it's, it's going to, um, you know, that, that it's going to lead to, any kind of um, that it's going to lead to, to, to something that would even be like what your Tukun magazine, you know, maybe J street to give them to, if you want to give them this much credit types would hope like a Palestinian state would be. Uh, and, and so that's like part of it, but then part of it's like a more abstract thing about justice uh, that, um, you know, you can read an article that I wrote, in, in Jacobin, like over the summer called uh, Israel, Israel doesn't have a right to exist, but Israelis and Palestinians do, where I kind of like lay all that out. And, and it just sort of increasingly became clear to me in the abstract that like taking the sort of like, this is not even like radical Marxist stuff, just like sort of baseline, like, you know, um, liberal democratic principles seriously meant, you know, like just does entail that like a one state uh, solution with full right of return for refugees and all that stuff. It, I, I mean, I, I just don't see how you could escape that consequence of those principles. And then also, um, and then also, you know, also just kind of consideration about the sort of double standards that are involved. If you have a kind of lefty position on other things, but you're not, uh, you know, but you don't have like kind of a, 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 a one state sort of, you know, single secular democratic state, you know, full right of return for, you know, descendants of Palestinian refugees kind of position. 
Uh, because, you know, in other contexts, like I sort of take it for granted that partition is really bad, right? So what makes this so special? Uh, and, and so, so I am definitely like on that page, uh, you know, like, like I, I think, uh, people can listen if they want, you know, uh, to, you know, if this is entertaining or interesting for people to me and David Feldman yelling at each other about this stuff over the summer, uh, you know, around the time that I, I, uh, I wrote that article. Cause like, I think he's still, he's still kind of in the place that I was many years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, so given that, right. Given that I do like, I mean, even the better version of the J street position, you know, the one that says like, okay, you shouldn't have us military aid to Israel, but also like, you know, Israel has a quote unquote right to exist, whatever the hell that means. Right. Like, which, I always want to know, like, okay, did Czechoslovakia have a right to exist, right? You know, that's the, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> there are, it seems like national configurations come into and out of existence all the time, you know, and, and that with, and we don't normally think that that necessarily violates anybody's rights. Uh, they, you know, the, the question is like what the consequences are going to be and, you know, and, and, and whether anybody's more or less depressed, you know, because that happens. But, um, you know, uh, but, um, you know, does Northern Ireland have a right to exist, you know, separately from the future United Ireland? Uh, you know, but um, so so I certainly, you know, don't like even the Tacoon position at this point, never mind the, the J Street position. I and mean, I think to give credit where credit's due, you know, a learner would probably still say, like, no, you shouldn't have military aid to Israel, at least as long as the occupation is going on. Um, so given that, what do you do about the Jamal Bowman types uh, and that's a much trickier proposition for me because I think that uh, I mean this kind of in a way goes back to what I was just saying to the, the previous you know to uh, to uh, the previous caller about uh, about like how if Bernie Sanders were elected like like if he was able to get any of his agenda passed what would that take at the grassroots level and all that it's, it's kind of a similar discussion. Because on the one hand, I think that some like I think voting for the Iron Dome is really bad. You should condemn that. Um, on the other hand, I, I think that unfortunately it might just be a fact of our situation right now. The DSA just doesn't have that much, um, like that many chips to play. You know, when, when, when it comes to electeds who who do things we don't like, because mm-hmm. like because uh, honestly, I think that. If you, if like DSA said uh, unambiguously, right, like, like like they just they just had said in their statement, you know, we we have, you know, Jamal Bowman, you know, we cast you out, you know, you you're you're expelled from DSA, we're not going to support you next time, like you know, he might be upset, but like I, I don't think he would worry that that meant he wasn't going to be reelected. Uh, and, and so yeah, I I guess I just think that this is something where. Like I think a, a stronger statement would have been nice. Like I, I would have, you know, like like, you know, a uh, a a DSA condemns in the strongest terms, you know, this 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 vote and don't bury it like three paragraphs in kind of thing. But um, you know, which which might be an unfair gloss on the statement. I just remember looking over it and, and thinking it looked a little wishy washy to me. But um, uh, I, I know it did. I know it did say all this was wrong. And you know, and and they and it, it at least expressed strong disagreement with all with all these stances, but um, I, I think the I think you're also going to run into a weird issue if you do, 
do the stronger response because okay one it's just not going to be like there's just not going to be very much bite to go with that bark and two if you do do that like you immediately raise all these questions like oh like you said i mean even ilhan omar you know voted like she didn't vote for the iron dome funding but you know but, but she voted for like just the sort of standard package of you know military you know include military aid to uh to israel uh so uh you're probably you know like like if you want to really consistently enforce like really good standards like hey here's the uh you know, here's our position on Palestine. This is an important issue to us. This is a profound issue of principle. If you get out of line, we're going to kick you out. Then like, you're probably very quickly not going to have any DSA electeds left. And and I guess, I, I mean, I'd be curious about what you think about this, but I mean, like, it just seems like, um, it just seems like you, you know, like like the, it, it just seems like condemnation of the Iron Dome vote is, is good, but you might just have to, build up your your ground troops to a much greater level before before you're going to be in much of a position to reel these people in yeah no i basically agree with what you said i actually think it's possible that if the dsa expelled him it's possible that that could help him <laughs> in his district <laughs> um because he he defeated elliot engel who was one of the most intensely hawkishly pro israel uh democrats in Congress throughout his career. And, uh, you know, his district has a large Jewish population. Um, and, you know, I mean, everyone knows that Jews aren't a monolith on this issue or sure. anything else, but it's, it's still, you know, it's yeah, still yeah. a Ju- district Ju- Ju- where it's a little bit hard to, uh, you know, it would be hard for him to embrace BDS, which is one of the right. demands yeah. that uh, the DSA put out for for him and the other thing that i didn't like about it is i really didn't like it when his um his participation in that j street u town Uh, hall became like a new offense and and like because that was actually what um pushed the dsa like palestine solidarity or bds working group that's what pushed them to like officially like demand like okay we need to ex uh, start the expulsion process now. And I thought that, that that was really silly because I mean, it was like a zoom call with a bunch of college kids. Frankly, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't care if he did a zoom call with like a college APAC group. Yeah, 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 it's like yeah, yeah. it's just a zoom call. He's just answering their, their yeah, questions. Right. Like, at, like at, the, at the very least, if you want to get upset about that, you should get upset about what he said to them. Not, not the fact that he was saying that. And from what I hear, like, it seems like what he said wasn't even that bad. Well, that's the other thing. It's, it seems like it honestly seems like this trip from J street's perspective with, with, with J street trying to um, promote, um, you know, a, you know, strict adherence to their line about this two state solution yeah. and everything. It seems like this trip might've backfired for them because he came back and he said to the J street kids, like, yeah, he said that he was surprised that there was like no interest in a two-state solution from the Israeli government. Of course, Naftali Bennett has always been uh, against the two-state right. solution. He's never even pretended or gestured towards endorsing it. And Yair Lapid is like very wishy-washy um, on it, but basically, you know, also has no interest in it. Um, and Jamal Bowman said to these J Street U kids, like, yeah, I didn't see any interest whatsoever from mm-hmm. the Israeli government 
on the two state solution. Um, so like, I, I definitely still don't agree with, I don't think that Jamal Bowman has good politics on uh, right. policy in general. I don't think his um, politics on Palestine are good. I mean, compared to, Elliot Engel, they're amazing. And compared to right, 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 right. Um, most of the U.S. Congress, I mean, he's definitely like, you know, I mean, it's an extremely low bar, but he's definitely yeah, but more it's, supportive it's also, of Palestinian rights than the vast majority of Congress. Yeah. So, I, 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 and it's a low bar, but it's also a really important point because I, I think that you know, and I'm not telling anybody that they shouldn't be mad about some of this, especially I think the Iron Dome vote, I think that's worth, I, I think that's maybe worth spending some time being mad about, but I think, um, you know, ultimately like this does kind of smack to me of the usual sort of depressing thing about the contemporary left where, you know, if you can't win the most important battles, like you try to, you try to find pick that you think you can win or at least you you think that there's a there's there's something you can do right like it's like uh bruce schneier is a uh, security expert and and i think he said this maybe in the context of uh of making fun of like the way that you know the sort of like having to take your shoes off at the airport that like uh which he says like security theater you know that it, it, it's just there to uh to make people feel like they're being harassed enough that they're safe and, you know, it says, like, the security syllogism is, you know, something must be done. We've done something. So something, you know, whatever, right? Like, uh, I think that, you know, it, it just, it seems like it makes me think of something Adam Proctor, I remember writing, like, back in, like, oh, God, when was this? Like, like 20, uh, 2017, around the time of the DSA convention then, when, when he, he had this nice line about, you know, trying to win before you win, right? You know, that like, if you vote for the most fire-breathingly radical sounding things ever and they pass, that feels like a kind of victory that you haven't actually won anything, you know, like, well, like that, that, that doesn't actually advance anything, you know, that you, that you care about. And so it's like, yeah, uh, you know, if you, if you're in like DSA, you know, which, which, which already means you have good, you know, relatively good politics, at least Jamal Bowman is too, but relatively, uh, and, and certainly if you're in the DSA Palestine working group, like you have all the sort of normative positions on Israel Palestine that I do presumably. And, and, and you are rightly frustrated and outraged. Uh, but then it's like, well, you can't actually do anything about USAID to, to Israel, right? That, you know, that's out of your power. Uh, and, um, maybe, like I, I think probably some people are fooling themselves into believing they can do something about Jamal Bowman, uh, like like in terms of like how he's going to vote or like what his views are going to be. Uh, but even if you you know whether you have that illusion or not, like uh, and as you say, I mean you know DSA kicking him out over this might actually help him, uh, which is incredibly depressing. But uh, but I think like at the very least the fact that Jamal Bowman has, you know, probably not actually literally a DSA membership card in his pocket, but, you know, like uh, at least metaphorically or the, you know, the electronic equivalent thereof, like that makes it feel like there's something that's within your power to do something about that. You know, here's something I can do. I can, I can take that card out of his pocket, you know, like, uh, and, and as long as I can do something, doing something feels better than, than doing nothing, which is kind of how like, last you know like you know well summer of last year summer of 2020 
you ended up having like the biggest explosion of, of unrest, you know, in, in the United States in some ways in, you know, several decades in some ways ever, you know, over, over police violence. And then like, it ended up so much of it ended up getting channeled into stuff like changing the names of, of, of like streets in, in like small suburbs somewhere, or, you know, or, or bullying like some like tiny business into issuing some meaningless statement of, you know, support for black lives matter uh, because those were fights that were winnable. And if you can't win the fights that matter, you know, at least, at least you can win the fights, you know, at least you can pick the fights you can win. Uh, which is the kind of thing that I'd like to get the left in general away from because, because I think like, uh, I, I mean, not that I would like think that some horrible injustice was being done. If Jamal Bowman was kicked out of DSA over this, I wouldn't, but I, I would question why anybody thought that that was moving the ball forward in, in a positive direction and the stuff we, we care about. And I would worry that it at least signaled, a move in the direction of caring more about the sort of symbolism of what we're upholding than actually advancing, you know, the interests of the Palestinians in the real world. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, I, I should say I, I am sympathetic to it because I think it's very possible that someday um, we'll look back on this and think like, wait, uh, member of the democratic socialists of America voted to give billions of dollars in military aid to an apartheid state. Like yeah, right. it is, it is crazy. So it's, I don't think that it's unreasonable in principle to, sure. to make that a, a litmus test for being a member of an organization. And um, that's why I've had some kind of uh, yeah. some ambivalence about it, but I do think that, you know, a lot of people in the DSA have been using this word accountability and they yeah. seem to think that the DSA has the has the capacity to hold Jamal Bowman accountable for um whatever he's done and it just doesn't really seem like that's true. So Yeah, right. Like like yeah, that that word accountability means a lot of different things and most of them I I have to say in practice, I don't find very useful, but look, I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you on the point of principle. I mean, I mean, let's, let's be really specific about this. And I'm not even necessarily saying that it would like lead to some disastrous consequence if they did kick him out. Like, I don't know that it would, right. You know, mm-hmm. like, like that might not be that bad, but like, um, but certain. Yeah. And I should, I should say to be clear, um, I think it's it's now been ruled by like the national yeah yeah they're they're, they're not going to that they're like they're, but, they're but, not but it, going to yeah no I, I saw that but like if they had decided yeah. to I don't know that necessarily would have been yeah. that bad uh, I mean again I would have worried about what it signaled in terms of like the sort of general drift of priorities but I don't think the thing itself necessarily would have been that bad uh, but like certainly on the point of principle yeah for sure I mean if we lived in a world where these exact same votes were happening and which I hope would be the emphasis, not like the photo op and certainly not the zoom call with the college students. I'm with you there, but like, you know, these exact votes were happening about military aid to Israel, but we were in a world where let's say, let's do the easy case where there were, you know, where like the membership of, of DSA was like several million people. And, and, and it was like really powerfully connected to a lot of labor unions and, and they had, uh, and politicians, like DSA electeds were really worried that like, 
if DSA didn't endorse them next time, uh, you know, that then like they wouldn't be able to fight off some primary challenge or whatever in that world. Yeah. I wouldn't even hesitate. I would say, absolutely. You should kick him out, you know, for, uh, you know, for voting, uh, for voting for, for Iron Dome funding, uh, because, because that would actually, that would actually do some good. I mean, that, that would like, even if he stayed recalcitrant, uh, and, and even if he like sort of fought off the, the prime, you know, the sort of primary challenge from the left next time or whatever, uh, that, that would at least put the fear in, in other DSA electeds and that might be really useful. And, and like I said, it certainly wouldn't be like unjust to him, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, I, I would be absolutely in favor of doing it under those circumstances, but I, I, I do like the idea that we would sort of act like we were in those circumstances when we're not, and and not really think about how this connected to some kind of larger strategy and, you know, do things that at least gestured in the direction of of really de-emphasizing, um, you know, like trying to build whatever tiny amount of power, you know, that we actually have to build right now. Uh, you know, all, all of that would worry me, right? So I, I guess, like, I, I should also say that I am somebody who you know, since about like 20, you know, late 2017, I have sort of consciously stepped back from like factional politics and DSA. I will still, I mean, you know, DSA, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a DSA member that gets some money from me every month. Every time a DSA branch invites me to speak to them, I always say yes. Uh, I, I always, uh, I always encourage people to join DSA, but like, the idea of being more directly involved in factional politics within DSA is for a variety of reasons, something that like leaves more of a bad taste in my mouth now than it used to. And, and, it, and it's just not a, um, it's just not a direction I find productive for me personally. Right. So I haven't now, but if I were right, like, like, like let's say I did the thing that I, I probably would not want to do. And, and, and I like, you know, ran for and and won some sort of like office within DSA. I was like on the NPC and this issue came up right now. I would probably vote against expelling Jamal Bowman for all the reasons that we're saying, but in a hypothetical world where DSA had more power, I'd for sure vote for it. Yeah. And it has been a bit frustrating because I think actually probably the majority of DSA's membership probably did not uh, want him to be expelled. But I think people are a little bit afraid to voice that opinion because the the people who want him to be expelled, um, it's, it seems like they, they very quickly go to implying that, um, you know, making these sorts of strategic arguments, you know, at bottom, it's just really yeah, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't care it's about just Palestine. not you don't care about uh the palestinians or you're not standing in solidarity with the palestinians and they also uh, you know i've heard a lot of rhetoric from those people that was like claiming like kind of implying that all the palestinians in dsa and all the palestinians yeah, in the right, world right. want jamal bowman to be expelled from the dsa which is why it was kind of funny that when the NPC uh, voted against um, expelling him and they put out their statement, the actual BDS organization posted something on Twitter, which didn't mention Bowman by name, but like, uh, you know, it said like, 
it, it very clearly implied that they were at least somewhat sympathetic to strategic arguments against expelling Jamal Bowman. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this this kind of thing is always super frustrating. Like, um, like in, in 2015, when there was the big fight about whether to like immediately endorse or no, not 2015. Sorry, 2019 is what then, right? When there was the, the fight about whether to. Um, you know, whether to endorse Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, like right after he, uh, right after he declared, which like is the kind of thing that like 99.9% of people who know what DSA is, if you tell them that was a big fight, they'll, they'll look at you like you're crazy. It's like, what, there's somebody in DSA who's against that. That's weird. You know, like, uh, like, you know, but, uh, but it was right. Like if you were on Twitter, you would think that that was going to be like a 50, 50 vote. But of course it was like, you know, I, you know, they, the, uh, let's, let's put it this way. I'm pretty sure that every single person who voted against it, you know, was weighing in on Twitter, right? You know, there, there was no, there were no silent votes against doing yeah. that. And, and then, uh, so that's all like, like, that's already bad enough, right? You know, and then, but then the other thing that's super frustrating that you're identifying is this kind of like thing where you'll get cliques of people within some sort of identity category who will sort of take it upon themselves that they are the moral spokesman of, of the whole, of the whole category, uh, yeah. which is crazy. Cause like, look, clearly there are lots of Palestinians who really care about Palestinian rights or whatever, who like, whatever uh, they, they, who, who supported Joe Biden in the democratic primaries because like, you know, they, you know, they thought that was the best bet for beating Trump or like whatever. Right. Like that there are, there are, every identity category has people with a thousand positions. We don't like it, you know, cause, cause like, uh, groups of humans will disagree about, you know, like even groups of humans who have the same values will disagree about, you know, about, about strategy and disagree about all kinds of things. But then like you get these things like when, um, you know, when Adolf Reed, uh, was, was going to speak to, uh, to the, um, lower Manhattan, and then also Philly DSA and then like the, uh, you know, the Afro socialist caucus was like condemning it. And like, people were talking about that as if this was just like the, the collective voice of all black people in DSA. And it's like, dude, you're talking about like 20 people, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, uh, totally. And uh, speaking of, uh, I'm pretty sure that um, Jamal Bowman's politics on Israel, Palestine are, no different from Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders spoke at the, uh, he's spoken at the J street conference before. Um, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe he would, uh, differ on some subjects, but I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe I, I, I do think, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder too, if people are grading Bernie on a little bit more of a curve, not only cause like, you know, they rightly see him as more important to their political project, but also because he, he used to be pretty bad and like, you know, and, and, and if anything, like Bertie is like inched in the, inched in the right direction over the course of the, the last several years. Like, uh, this is, you know, when he first announced for president in 2015, you know, my moment of hesitancy about this was that like, I had followed his career enough to know that like, you know, that there were some, you know, there were definitely some foreign policy positions that I was not crazy about in his, uh, in his background. Right. I mean, like, like in, in a, in a sufficiently view from 10,000 feet sense, he was good. I mean, you know, he was, he was like, uh, 
obviously very, very against like most of the wars that the U S fought in the time that, you know, he was in Congress and the Senate, but like, uh, but yeah, on, you know, if you look at a lot of details, there's a lot of stuff that's not great there. And, and if, yeah. if anything, it seems like over the course of the last several years, he's kind of recovered some of the, you know, like some of like the older, better version of uh, Bernie Sanders on foreign policy. But yeah, I, I, I certainly take your point that it's like, yeah, you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to have a different standard for Jamal Bowman, probably realistically, because you just expect more from Jamal Bowman, uh, which is, I, I guess, just because he's like younger or just because, you know, he you know was actually a DSA member or whatever. But like, uh, but but I think I think it is worth taking a step back and thinking about like, OK, if, um, you know, if Bernie Sanders joined DSA tomorrow, would you kick him out? over any of his Palestine positions or like if he, um, you know, if he actually like ran for president a third time in, you know, in, in 2024, which like sadly I don't think is going to happen, but like, uh, you know, but if it did, I, I would be all for it. I mean, like whatever. I mean, it, it could be like, uh, you know, like, like even if it was, you know, even, yeah, I mean, he could be held up like weekend at Bernie's and I, and I would still, I would still support him, you know, but, uh, uh, but, but if that did happen, right, would you then, uh, would you then not support him because, you know, he is severely imperfect on Palestine? No, presumably not, because even, in, even above and beyond everything that's outside of this issue, you could say you would correctly calculate that, you know, a hypothetical President Bernie would be way better for the Palestinians than any realistically imaginable alternative, and you know, and and so you could certainly, you could certainly make the same case about about Jamal Bowman. You know that, like, um, as you say, replaced Elliot Engel. You know, like, like, like he's he's you know if he, you know if he lost the next his next race, like he certainly wouldn't be. You know, it's it's not like he'd be losing to Norman Finkelstein. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. Although Norman Finkelstein would also be. Oh, that's true. That's true. Because he's anti-BDS. Yeah. Okay, I forgot about that. Good point. I should have a different stock example, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, for, for sure. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think that like, again, if DSA had enough power that it was going to do some good to, to expel him, then yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd probably be in favor of that. But if, um, I, I mean, if, if, it, if it had enough power, there was definitely going to be some good, I'd, I'd definitely be in favor of it. But uh but as is, it does seem a little inconsistent, and 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 and, and, it, and it's very hard to see what what good it would do. Like again, I think like yeah, I mean, you know, of course, it's. I mean, is it more of a good thing or a bad thing that Jamal Bowman is in Congress? I mean, that that's like a ridiculous question. Of course, it's more of a good thing. It's. Uh, I mean, like, you know, we, like we are just starting to get to the point where, you know, some kind of like at least robustly social democratic left with a, with a socialist core is extra, you know, like has like just a little bit of a presence in real politics. And, and the last thing you want to do is to, is to just throw that away. I mean, this is why, you know, I mean, not that, I mean, saying these words feels a little bit like, you know, going up to the mirror in the dark and saying, bloody Mary, you know, however many times you're supposed to say it to, you know, get her to appear before you. But like you know, that's why I thought force the vote was dumb, right? Why? Why are you like like what? What's supposed to come? 
what's the positive thing that's supposed to come out of like picking, you know, like, like, like picking this big fight and, you know, and like sort of condemning and denouncing and, and, and like distancing yourself from like the, the very few people who you've, you've actually elected. Right. I mean, like you're not going to get Medicare for all unless you have like hundreds of these people in Congress, you know? So, uh, Oh, so you don't support universal health care? Yeah, that's, wow. that is exactly that is exactly what I just said. Yeah, so uh, so you okay? All right. So to review uh, before we end the episode tonight, the things that people have learned about me for this episode is are that I I, I think panpsychism is probably wrong. Uh, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical about the connection between postmodernism and and like sort of radlib identity politics, uh, and I don't give a shit about. Uh, Palestinians or universal health care uh, because I'm a good solve those things. <laughs> yeah, and um, thanks so much for uh, uh, taking my call, Ben, and I would love it if um, when Norman Finkelstein's book on cancel culture and academic freedom comes out, I think you should try to get him on the show. I think that would oh, be yeah. awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I will, I will definitely do that. All right. Uh, Thank you, uh, Matthew. Thank you, everybody uh, who has uh, who has been listening. Uh, I originally intended to probably end this episode at nine Eastern, but the conversations were all really good, uh, so so I, I didn't want to I didn't want to kind of terminate things prematurely. Uh, but now I am actually uh, going to um, going to end the room because I have to eat dinner. And then I have to watch Ready or Not because I'm supposed to talk to Jason Miles and Tori Reid about it tomorrow for a uh, GCA patron episode. If by any chance anybody is listening to this uh, who is not a um, who uh, who doesn't uh, who doesn't watch or listen to my main show, give them an argument. Uh, you should you should correct that immediately <laughs> and. Uh, and, and subscribe to it on YouTube and listen to it on the, you know, podcast apps and, you know, become a patron and all that good stuff. Uh, you know, so you can get stuff like that conversation with Jason and Toure about, uh, about ready or not. Uh, but I am super excited about the beginning of, of this show of, of give me an argument. I mean, this is a, a format that, that I think, I think is really good for me and, and, and that I, I think anybody who knows me and knows my stuff would know that I would get excited about this. So this is really cool. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you everybody so much for asked questions. Uh, this was a really, really good discussion. This is exactly what I hoped this would be left is best.